Hey, you Hanyaks. Welcome back to the Rambling Viking Podcast, bringing your final dose of weird for this week. We skipped Wednesday for various reasons, namely snowboarding. So uh, that happens, yeah. That's why we're up in Denver. But we're back at it here Friday to bring you the long-awaited, long-talked-about book review of my first book I've read this year, which is How Not to Read the Bible by Dan Campbell. Mentioned it a few times, but today you get all the links, all the official stuff, and my full review. Um, But before we get into that, I forgot. Yeah, I forgot everything. I had some stuff to talk about in the intro, and um, it's all gone now. You might say, don't you have notes, Jehanyak? Yes, I do have notes. Let me pull those up. Okay, here we go, here we go, here we go. The Daily Wire, this is just random news, uh, Daily Wire premiered their second movie, uh, Shut In, last night. It was amazing. It is brutal. But it is a, I think, a powerful story about overcoming and facing your demons, and uh, that's partially what they say in the description. But it's it's accurate, you know. Like they did a good job on their description. Uh, in the Olympics, so far I haven't watched much. My, my wife and I will occasionally peruse through some clips. Our favorite things to find are the luge or the skeleton. Which is the same thing, but just facing either you're going head first or feet first. Take your pick. And then last night, I might have found my favorite event. Favorite new event. I don't know what it's called, but I call it the hands up ski jump. Because that's what's going on. So it's uh, it's not the big air one where it's like the big giant jump and they you, they go like flat pancake and have the most ankle flexion out of anyone ever born ever. And just try and go for height and distance and perfect form and landing. This one, they do tricks. So it's almost, it's a smaller jump, but it, it sends you vertical. So they only jump lengthwise. They only cover maybe 30 feet, like from the jump to landing, lengthwise. But height-wise, they probably go about 30 to 40 feet. And it's straight up. And when they're doing, they're doing all these twists and flips and stuff. And so it's, if you know anything about aerial acrobatics i mean it's all about you you tuck in or you open up at certain times and that um, speeds up slows affects your rotation in a certain way and so they're so precise that (laughs) in the air i mean you'll see all of a sudden arm up and arms out and then opening up then doing this and it's kind of fun especially you watch slow motion it's almost like a dance routine but the best part is we're watching it and so they start going down straight and then when they get right before the ramp basically they they stand upright and they put their arms straight up. It's almost like they're it's it's almost like when you prep to go off the drop off on a roller coaster and they go straight up and then they go woof and they hit the jump and we saw one person who was like that's kind of weird and then I realized everyone does it in some way. One guy he only raised one hand because he I needed to start some twist or something, uh, so he just had a question for the teacher. But it was wildly entertaining. I I mean. I'm sure it has to do with the the timing, the speed, and and getting into your, you know, your spin, flip, twist, aerial things you're doing, but it's hilarious nonetheless. It just and and the commentary is like, all right, we're going, we're going, we're going, everybody, hands go up, and here we go, we're flipping, and there's like, oh, gotta flip, tuck right, tuck left, oh, and back out right, and back, and, and, and it happens so fast. I don't know. Go check it out. I don't know what it's called. It's like freestyle ski jump or something, and. That's probably not right, but it's great. And the and the tricks they're doing, too, are also incredible. 
Um, and if you're a fan of Fleckas Talks and you watch his podcast and they talk about it, they only watch the ones that get in compound fractures. I mean, that, that's, those, those things in life in general are the most, always have the most eyes on them. But this is definitely one of those. So Fleckas, if you listen to this podcast ever. But uh, if you're new here, I want to welcome you to the Ramley Viking Podcast. I know I've ta- told a lot of my new um, quote-unquote friends. I'm just kidding. They are friends. A lot of new people I met about the podcast, and they said they'd check it out. So if this is your first episode that you're checking out, welcome. Uh, welcome to the Hanyak Horde. If you don't know what a Hanyak is, I think I explained it on some episode, but I'll just to give you a quick rundown. Basically, once upon a time, it referred to like Hungarian farmers who didn't want to find go find actual like better land than what they had to farm they just decided to use what crappy land they were on and figure it out and so basically they're too stubborn to change their ways they're like i'll just make this work and i've co-opted that term and um i mean it can mean a positive it can mean a negative you know you could be a hanyak and uh, about your faith and that's a good thing say nah this is my faith i'm sticking to it um and it's like, okay, there's some respect in that. And then it could be in a bad thing. It's like, you know, it's like, it could be like, hey, I, I said this horrible thing and I'm sticking to it. And it's like, eh, it's not a good thing. So it goes both ways. But I am uh, the head Hanyak. And if you listen to my podcast, you are a part of the Hanyak horde, whether you like it or not. So don't be a Hanyak, you Hanyak. But that's a little quick introduction. So, um, all right. I think that's everything I needed to cover. Got some exciting episodes coming up. Should be back to... Uh, the future, the future, back to the future, back to the three a week. Oh, that's right. I don't know if you heard about this. It's wild. Let's see if I put an article in the link, but Ottawa. So of course in the spirit of the honking, the great honking of our time, the, the truckers protesting the vaccine mandates, which is very important because some people are mischaracterizing them as anti-vaxxers when 80 to 90% of the truckers involved are vaccinated, but they just don't believe that it should be mandated. It should be left up to choice. And so that's why they're protesting in the best way possible. Hey, what if we just pulled all our trucks into downtown and clogged everything up until they changed? Huh? Because, well, we're not delivering stuff. They can't go anywhere. Nobody can maneuver. Sounds sounds like a great plan. Yeah. And they're like, yeah. And they all do. And I love it. And I, and I love what's going on. So don't believe the hype about them being some fringe or anti-vaxxers, they're anti-mandators, um, which could be taken a couple different ways now that I say that out loud. I mean, in some ways, I'm I'm anti-mandate, um, obviously, when it comes to this vaccine, but also, I'm not, per- I'm, I'm, I'm not going to date a man. No. Well, first of all, I'm married. Second of all, uh, not into dudes like that. So I'm not going to date a man. So I'm anti-mandate. So if you were hoping that I was, was pro-mandate or to get me on a mandate, I'm, so, I'm sorry. You're sadly mistaken. I'm anti-mandate in that sense. And um, no, I'm not. Now, that's not what they're protesting. Though. That, they're protesting the other mandate. But um, I, I believe you can be anti-mandate in several senses there, as we can see. So, yeah, let me know if you're anti-mandate. I wonder if I could make a funny sticker that got that across. It says anti-mandate, and it has, like, I don't know, like two silhouettes of dudes or and, like, flowers in between or something or a table. If you have any ideas, let me know. Because uh, that's the thing I can do now because we have merch. Fun, quick quick last reminder, then we'll get into this book review because I'm sure it'll take the whole time. But 
yeah, uh, you can go to the Mead Hall. You can go to meadhall.redbubble.com. The link will always be in the description from here on out. I've got some first round of stickers. Mine should be coming in, so if you're waiting to order, by next, they're coming in next week. I'll have them. I'll give the full review, probably post some stuff to Instagram about what they look like. And then from and if they all come out good, then you know open the floodgates. Go buy a 1,000 and start handing them out to all your friends, putting them on random cars in the parking lot. I don't care. Just anywhere and everywhere. Spread the word. So... There's that, and uh, now I'm in a place where it's like, oh, I'll make a sticker about that or a piece of merch about that. And right now it's stickers because I'm, I'm just getting my feet wet. And stickers are cheap, they're low cost, so I would feel horrible if I made a shirt and it came out bad, and like 15 people bought it, and they all spent 20, 25 bucks or whatever it would be, and they got a crappy shirt. Like I would feel absolutely horrible. So I'm, I'm easing my way into that. But that being said, put this out there before. If you have any experience in this sort of stuff and designing, and um, or, or maybe just running a shop of some sorts. I would love to get any info and advice you might have or insight on how to do that because I'm, 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 I'm just riding the lightning on this. Just just straight up riding the lightning and figuring it out as I go. So, All right, that does it. That's your 10-minute intro of random stuff that we always seem to do and never get around. So I have to excuse me. <clears throat> A little bit backed up there. All right, so How Not to Read the Bible by Dan Kimball and the subtitle, which it's funny. I've talked to a couple people about it and I was like, I can never remember exactly what it says, but I was so this. So this is my paraphrasing. Now that I have the book in front of me, I can read it, but it's always been making, you know, how not to read the Bible. And I was like, and I was like dealing with a anti-woman pro, what did I say? Like pro violence or something like that. Or in wild parts of the Bible by Dan Kimball. So the actual subtitle, for those of you who've heard me totally botch it making sense of the anti-women anti-science pro-violence pro-slavery and other crazy sounding parts of scripture um it's about 300 pages ton of references and any book that leads off with a bunch of well-respected uh peers or leaders in said field or area um of expertise that the book is written on any any book that has like four or five pages of just testimonials from respected colleagues, peers, uh, leaders of that field is usually a pretty good book. And that's what this one is. And so it's got a bunch of people. I heard about it from the podcast, uh, The Bible Project, led by Tim Mackey. It's a really good one. And they had Dan Kimball on. I'll put that link again in this description so you can go listen to it for yourself if you're apprehensive about grabbing the book. And, and I was like, oh, that sounds awesome. But uh, I just want to start with the general philosophy of this. I think that is something that sometimes in Christian circles gets overlooked and underappreciated or valued is the value of attacking the hard parts of the Bible. So take it from someone who grew up in the Christian world, the Christian life. Now my, you know, my faith is my own now. That's the Christianese for you of, you know, I grew up with Christian parents, but I made my faith my own when I was whatever age. That's some, that's some classic Christianese, but I, uh, you know, you can, I mean, Christian school, everything, uh, there is a bubble. And when you grow up in that world, a lot of people, what they find is that they find they only hear, I don't know, they almost get a bubble-wrapped version, or, or they hear it so much that they get so used to it that they, they either miss out on or are not presented with 
the the hard parts of scripture and how to deal with those and nobody wants to play nobody plays devil advocate for them because i think there's always this underlying fear that if you start doubting and questioning and challenging then you follow what if you fall away from the faith and it's like well that's the choice that they have to face and make and if we really believe this to be true we shouldn't shy away from any part of it if the whole and i'm holding the book up um but i'm really talking about the bible but you know if we believe the bible to be absolutely god's word and truth then we, we need to face kind of like shut in, right? You've got to face the hardest parts of it. And, you know, just like we have to face our biggest flaws and fears and shortcomings. And, and that's the best way to, to get through them is, is the confrontation. And it's sad. I hate hearing those stories of like, yeah, I, you know, grew up Christian, whatever. And then I went off to college and heard these challenges and, or, or you know, were shown these parts of the Bible and, where people, you know, they, they'll take a verse or, or something from, especially from the Old Testament. That's, that's the most common trope, but we'll get to that. But, and then, and then I started just questioning everything I didn't know. And it's like, I think the thing that gets lost a lot of times in the Christian faith is that God specifically, what he wants is he wants you to come to him no matter what. And that, I that's the first step, right? Obviously he wants a good relationship with him once he wants to walk with you, but before anything else, and this is when we find ourselves in shame and we feel like, ah, I'm too bad to go to church or God doesn't want any part of me because I'm such a bad person. And I was like, no, no, no. That's who he wants the most is because he wants you to realize his love for you and that, um, and his, his endless grace, mercy, forgiveness, all of love, all of the above. And, and he wants to be in relation with you. So even when that means, you know, if you're angry at him, if you're not, if you, if you don't know why something is the way it is, you know, God, why do you act this way? Why are you doing this? Why do you allow these things? He'd rather have that than you say that to yourself and turn your back on him. And I just, I think the same can be true, once again, this speculation here, uh, because I'm not one, can't speak from that perspective yet, but like with parents, right? Of course, of course, you know, as parents, you want your kids to turn out a certain way, but when they don't, at the very least, what you definitely want is you just want them to be able to, to come to you with things. And it's always a tricky situation, you know, because when you do something bad and you're like, I know I'm going to get in trouble and, but it, it's always better. And so, I mean, I know my parents was, if you did something bad and you came to them first, the punishment would always be less than if you let them find out on their own. And I think that's a partially a good policy and yeah, it sucks to face punishment and judgment, but anyways. And so that's what, that's what, I mean, really attracted me to this is he takes head on all of these and uh, we call mainstream objections and specifically it's current too because there's memes all throughout it and that's really his main source is like when you when you peruse the internet and peruse the world and talk that discusses religion here's what you see and by and large i will say this uh he points out that typically and i think this is true about a lot of things the these so-called objections or, or dunk on dunk moments, you know, it's like, Oh, dunking on the, see the Bible contradicts itself or the Bible has this horrible thing in it. They typically arise from, um, missing context, which I know we hear that. So we're bombarded with, well, you do out of context, out of context, but that's true. But I'll, I'll say this. I'll, I'll, let me back it up. A, a shallow understanding of what's going on and not actually diving into the text, the context, the, 
I mean, the time period, and, and a lot of times interjecting our modern world into their ancient, taking their ancient literature and saying, well, how's that work in our modern world? I'm not talking about application because that is necessary, right? So how does this apply? How does this interact with me today? And, but I'm talking about, say, certain set standards, like how could it say this about slavery or this about women? And it's like, well, are you thinking of it in terms of how those things are viewed right now today? Because they're very different. And, and what you might miss is that something is being addressed um, in their time and is actually a stepping stone towards our modern time, but it started there, right? It's like the first step. That's one thing that's, that's interesting that I don't have a good answer explanation for. And Dan doesn't either. Is that like, why on certain bad things, it's like, why doesn't he abolish it altogether? Or why does he approach it this way? And, and what we see is we see God taking incremental steps. And, but the thing, when you really think about it though, I, I, I think about anything. Usually that's the most effective way to get to a goal is incremental steps. I mean, you don't, and especially when it comes to convincing people, it's incremental steps. Show them one little thing at a time. Because if you blow someone's worldview up all at once, it can lead, it can be devastating. And a lot of times there's a huge denial. And so it's easier to, or it's more effective a lot of times to incrementally do it. You know, introduce certain questions and certain things or certain truths and, and have good conversations. And then over time, people come around. And that's usually what it takes. I mean, how many times have you been corrected, told something, criticized, whatever, heard some instruction, and at first, in the moment, you're like, ugh. But then, once the situation is over and maybe you've stepped away and, you know, you're not around the person who gave it to you anymore, and say you're just driving home from wherever with that person, and then you, as you marinate, meditate, whatever you want to say on whatever thing happened or was told to you, or instruction given, usually, if, you, if people are given time to sit on things, sleep on, sleep on it, they usually come to a good understanding decision, and that's when they're swayed most. Is typically not in the moment, but typically after the fact. And incrementally, so... Yeah, all right, that is way too much time on just running off the cuff. So I actually, I typed up a review for this. The trickiest part is, is I don't want it to be too in-depth that I give away all the key things of the book. So if you take, if you, if you listen to this and you're like, oh, you gave me all the key points. I did not. I shortened it. And he goes into in-depth explanations about a lot more of this. I'm going to touch on kind of the main points and his strategy, but I by no means am providing um, a cliff notes that will allow you to pass the test. And I mean, it's cheap and it, it really is an easy, easy read. And it's so well done that definitely worth getting it for yourself. All right, so let's dive into this. So said, you know, I think it's an incredible book in my newsletter. I said... 12 out of 12, which I'm grading on a 12 point scale with my books, I guess, but 12 out of 12 when you might say, Whoa, coming out a little hot there now, you know, what if another book is better? And I was like, I don't think another book is going to be better at doing what this book did, but I don't know for, because here, here's why I think it's amazing. 
and this is what I typed, right, is because this book appeals to the atheist, the atheist, the skeptic, the agnostic, the lifelong Christian, the new Christian, everyone in between. He wrote it in such a way, which first of all is um, if you're already in the, you know, the Christian wheelhouse, you're already, say, religious, or you're exploring it, I mean, this is a good book that, I mean, we're, we're literally told to read the Bible over and over again because it's the living word, and it is, and that's what we... You know, so we're always looking at the same material. Well, this is an awesome way to provide you that that walks you through the hardest passages in the hardest parts of the Bible, which I think is hugely important, especially if you start having uh, conversations with people about said things. And, you know, they they might bring a lot of these objections because, like I said, these are what he's finding on the Internet. And uh, a lot of times that's where people get their information. So. It provides an all-around contextual look at scripture, its purpose, use, and how to best understand the quirks often pointed out in snarky memes. Look at me go. I I wrote that? Wow. Uh, let's see. I said the entire premise is pointing out that common objections or tough verses that are brought forward in the public square, they're a product of people reading the Bible the wrong way. Uh, the easiest way to sum it up is that the seemingly abhorrent parts of the Bible are a product of shallow readings and understandings of the scriptures. Unfortunately, Christians don't realize this and aren't properly prepared to face these objections because too often these parts of the Bible aren't addressed in church. So that's my summer summation of the book. If you wanted the little 30 second excerpt, that's where it's at. That's where it's at. Um, and that's what it is. So that's how I would describe this book. So diving into the details, he kind of has four pillars that he continually comes back to to set the scene, right? Uh, the Bible is a library not a book, meaning the Bible is a collection. So this is something that maybe I've come to realize more recently, but the Bible gets treated as a singular book, like say this book, when in actuality, it is a collection of books bound together in one piece. uh, I mean, one piece of literature, I don't know what to call it, one collection, right? And so it's kind of like the Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter. They, it is one story, you know, but it's several different throughout several different books. And that's what the Bible is. It is a singular story that points to Jesus about the God, um, the one and only God, the true God, if you want to call him that, um, created everything and, and, you know, how he works throughout the world and how, and what his, um, and yeah, and, and getting to know him and how he saved all or has, has given the option to save everyone. Wow. Really stumbled over that. How's that for a good selling point? I know, right? I mean, don't you just want to become a Christian right now after I so eloquently just explained that? Oh, but I think that is a key to me. It struck me and I was like, ah, now maybe I had realized this, but never consciously realized it maybe been operating under this assumption, but I think a lot of people look at it and see a singular book. And now while it's a singular story, it is multiple books written over the course of 1500 years and across three different languages. So when you start looking at it, that perspective, you understand how there can be seemingly variation or how actually think about, I mean, think about the last 1500 years that takes us back to 500 AD. Think about all the things that have transpired since 500 AD to now where how much different the world was and how and how speaking in 
in say 500 AD or 750 or a thousand, um, versus speaking in 1500. And I didn't do my math right. Did I? No, I did my math right. 2000 minus 1500 is 500. Okay, good. For a half a second, I panicked and thought my math was wrong. Man, really killing it. This is a great book review, isn't it? Don't you think? So anyways, but you know, speak even, even what languages were prominent, even the English language and how it has changed and how the context of saying stuff, the, even stuff 50 years ago, talking about a smartphone, talking about, um, electric, go 150 years ago, talking about cars, you know, 200 years ago, talking about that. People are like, what are you talking about? I, a normal, if I just brought, let's not even say talk about like technology or crazy stuff like that, but just a normal conversation. And I try to have that with someone who comes from 1500, the year 1500, we are going to be so confused and, and say, I'm talking about my day to day and they talk about their day to day, two totally different things. And so bringing that into perspective, I think is so, so very important. Uh, and, and, and it helps you understand that, like, okay, it's, it's more broad in a lot of ways, but it's a library, not a book. And that's how you should view it. And like a library, it has different sections too. That's another thing that I, unfortunately, I don't know. I guess I always, once again, it was maybe so understood growing up in the Christian world that it was never formally addressed or I wasn't just, I didn't care and wasn't paying attention one or the other, but here I now care and I'm going to address it for you. Maybe you missed out, but it has different sections too that have different purposes or different styles. And those sections are as follows. There, it has law, history, poetry. You have major and minor prophets. Then you have the gospels. You have Paul's letters, general letters, and then finally apocalyptic. And so all those different things. And so you, you can already say, you can already see, right? I, I mean, my wheels started turning even on this point. And you can already see how the, the ball starts to roll here. And it's like, okay. So the Bible is a collection of books over 1500 years, written over 1500 years, across three different languages, many different cultures, um, by and large, the same people, but different people interact. And, oh yeah, it has these different sections. So when I look at a verse or I'm, I'm seeing a verse from, you know, Deuteronomy versus a verse from Psalms versus a verse from John, you would say, okay, what, what would the basic differences is you can say, well, one is law, one is a one is poetry and the other one is gospel. So they're in different sections written in different ways. And a lot of times to different audience, contextual audiences. So first and foremost, that kind of sets the straight because sets it straight because I think, I mean, because it is in a singular single entity, all this collection, you know, it comes in one form like that. You can buy it. It's not three different books or eight different books like Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings or what have you is all singular. Then it feels like, okay, it's one book when in actually it's a collection um, to, to make the, what we know as the Bible. All right, second point and probably the biggest point, really. I, I mean, that's kind of like a foundational s- scene setting, but this is the biggest point that is everything that is addressed in the book, he literally goes, I, he, at nauseum, he repeats, he repeats his next point, and it is never read a Bible verse. Oh, and I actually have page numbers for myself. Look at me go. Feel so cool. Never read a Bible verse. And then and so at the beginning of every chapter he has a little a little quote from somebody. And that's probably why that's why I put this in here. So this is a quote from Greg 
don't know how to say it, Kukul, author and apologist stand of Stand to Reason. And this is what he says. If there was one bit of wisdom, one rule of thumb, one single skill I could impart, one useful tip I could leave that would serve you well the rest of your life, what would it be? What is the single most important practical skill I've ever learned as a Christian? Here it is. Never read a Bible verse. That's right. Never read a Bible verse. Instead, always read a paragraph, at least. And so it's a fun point because you go, wait a minute, never read a Bible verse, but I'm supposed to memorize those. I'm supposed to look at those. I'm supposed to get those tattooed and uh, get stickers put on my car and and use them in post-game interviews. Philippians 4.13, what up? And, <laughs> and you know, supposed to really... St- shout it out everywhere right and it's like well yes it's kind of you know tongue-in-cheek never read a bible verse because you need to read the verse around then the paragraph around it and then the chapter and then look at the book and what section of the bible it comes from and ask yourself okay who is this talking to you know talking to what was going on in that time and the more you might say wow that's really intensive just to read one verse and it's like well it kind of matters and that's, that's the point, though, is because, I mean, look at where we are. Is people is because that's what people do is they cherry pick them out and they make these funny memes. And it's like, look, the Bible's anti-women. It's pro-slavery. It's whatever, this or that. And and so being equipped and knowing it, and that's part of knowing your Bible. And that's something that I've really increased on in the last several years is understanding the context. Now, it seems daunting, but if you just, the Bama podcast, Bible Project podcast, those, are, those would be my two recommendations to just go and listen to them. And because that's what they do. They walk through the Bible project has a lot more and stylistically they have an app now too, but Bayma it's, there's five sessions and it starts at the beginning and works its way through the Bible as we see, know it's structured and you don't get it right away. But after doing, you know, the five sessions there, a bunch of Bible project now reading this book and, and being immersed in it. Now it becomes like we were reading in group about Romans and I was like, ah, I could pull from memory. I know this was kind of, this was the audience and then in the church, this was the church makeup that Paul was writing to. And then, then you find yourself, you know, it's not so much of a struggle, but you can see it more fully. So, and like that quote said, I agree. I think this is the most important point in this is never read a Bible verse, read several. And like what we did in small group too, we, we looked at a section of four verses this last week and if you if you're listening and you're in the small group, shout out to you. What up? Uh, and at one point, this is something that I I brought up, and I, I I hate talking like that because it just sounds like I'm tooting my own horn. Um, some this is something that someone brought up, someone very intelligent and highly respected in the group, and but also at the same time, just a a, a fun loving. <laughs> I can't I can't keep that bit up. Uh, but so we were looking, you know, at, I think four verses specifically, maybe five. But then it's like I backed up and I started skimming around in the in the section that said to this chapter, two subsections. And then I looked at the subtitles and then I and then I thought about, OK, who was he writing to? And I was like, this is so this is what makes sense. This is why this was in here. And it just provides a full picture. It doesn't mean you can't hone in on those four collection of verses that, you know, kind of making one point really meditate on them. But just at least taking that 30 seconds to zoom out. And then go, okay, I see it. And then zoom back in, right? Like, what am I looking at? You know? Uh, let's see. And if I, if I forgot anything. Oh, this is, this is, okay, this is funny. We'll see how this is. So how I illustrate this in my review here is I say, for example, if someone tells you I shot and killed someone, you would be in shock and be wondering immediately, well, what happened, right? Because 
just saying, if, if, I, if I, yeah, if I told you, hey, I shot and killed someone, there are so many different ways that could go. Did I just walk up to a random person on the street and commit murder? Am I, and am I just like a psychopath? And did, was I defending myself or my family, my home? And, and you know, it's gonna, it's gonna, that's gonna have an effect on your overall reaction to me and what you do after that, right? If I just murdered someone in cold blood, I would hope that you would A, subdue me, arrest me, I don't know, maybe even kill me. I don't know. But like, you know, that's the response is like, you need to go to prison. But if it was, hey, I, you know, it was like, hey, I shot and killed someone. They broke into my house. They were threatening my family. And so I unfortunately took their life. Like, see how that's very different. But if all you knew was I shot and killed someone, but yet that is what we do to the Bible constantly, both in and outside, inside and outside of the Christian world. You see non, the secular world does it more. And like I said, it comes back to that shallow understanding and just wanting to dunk and get clout and, um, you know, dunk on people on social media online. But even within the Christian world, we do that. A lot of times we don't, we don't say, we don't look at the verse in scripture as is, but we impart you know, we look for scripture that could reinforce something that we want to believe or want to be true. And that's important, right? Uh, but, and, and so just like if I told you I, I went out and shot and killed someone or I punched someone in the face, well, to lighten it up, not making about death, um, you would, you know, the context would be very important. You'd want to know more. The same needs to be about our Bibles. Like, okay, well, where is this verse in the Bible? What section? Um, what book? What chapter? Who's the audience? And just all those questions. And it feels, I'm telling you, it's gonna, it feels like a lot when you say this, but really the process works pretty quickly. It's like if, say a verse, where's that verse? It's in Genesis. That's in the beginning. Okay. Oh, we're ta- oh, oh, it's talking about the creation. Okay, well, it's God um, you know, establishing himself and, and kind of it's setting the whole stage for the rest of the Bible, right? Where it's like, okay, it's in Psalms and no, oh, it's by David and he was distraught and this is poetry, you know, meant to be emotional or Proverbs. Oh, it's imparting wisdom. And so we know that and it's probably written by Solomon or someone of the like. And it's, you know, general wis- wisdom that is generally true. Um, so, yeah. So that's, that's the method, right? Look at the specific verse, paragraph, then the chapter, then the book, then the section. Uh, next point, man, we'll see. (laughs) I don't know. You know how long this podcast is. I don't know. I'm like, can I keep it at an hour? I'm like, "Ah, I think hour and a half is a better marker, but I want it to be in depth, but hopefully not pulling away. That's honestly my biggest fear is that I read a book and it's like, I paid money for this book and now I'm disrespecting the author by giving out, giving away all the secrets, but I don't think I will be. So, cause you really need to read through it. So, uh, next point though, is the Bible was written for us, not to us. And I kind of already touched on this, but, and, and that one was interesting to me. Cause it was like, whole, well, and it's like, when you think about it, it's like, okay, what he's getting at is all, all that is written in the Bible was written to a people at a time, especially in the new Testament with the letters, right? Ephesians, Galatians, first thing Corinthians, that's Thessalonians, Timothy. It's written to people or churches and that that had specific situations and so a lot of times that that applies to these verses as he was writing to that doesn't mean there's not truth because if you believe it to be the living word of god you believe it's um you know it's not just stagnated in history but um also understanding that context then you can a lot of times say oh my church is kind of like that and you know this advice would be helpful in this way but 
A lot of times you go in the Old Testament, it's talking to ancient Israel, introducing himself and trying to build them out as a nation, you know, a, a holy nation, a priesthood to the other nations. And, and that's what we see here. So while it was written for us, it was written for all peoples across all time. Obviously, there's a time where they didn't have it. And in Jesus time, they didn't have the New Testament. Right now we have the full thing. So we grateful. We grateful for that. Um, and it was written for us, yes, to understand God and to point to Jesus, our Redeemer, that you know he, this is the way to mend our relationship with God and the way to live and understanding our Creator, where we come from, et cetera, et cetera. But it wasn't written as a letter, you know, to me specifically right now in 2022. And that's the point he's making. And something that I already touched on, where I was like, we can't impart our mo- our modernity on this ancient literature too much. That can be a flaw a lot of times. And that's where a lot of these criticisms stem from. Right. And it's, uh, here's just what I said in my written review. I said, the, the context, I said, this is the first and most important contextual point. It's that this is an ancient book written to an ancient people in ancient cultures when the world was a vastly different place. So we need to be extremely careful looking at it through modern terms and judging it with our moral comp- with our moral compass is what I said or morals that we have today instead of stepping into that time and culture and understand why something would be said or said in a certain way and how something that would seem barbaric to us now to be said to them was actually reigning in the barbarism that they had at that time and we'll get to that later. And then lastly <laughs> All the Bible points to Jesus. So this is pertinent because you might say, well, that sounds like a Sunday school Christianese answer. And, but I think it's important to come back to. It is because that is what it is. And that is the all in all the point of the Bible. When you understand it is a singular story with a, with a you know, kind of a singular theme. Then you, because what we'll find later is, and what, you know, Christian world gets caught up in, especially, I mean, it's why we have denominations and different things, Calvinism, Armenian, or, you know, Calvin, Calvinists versus Armenians, all that stuff. Protestant versus, um, is it Protestant versus Reformed? Reformed is Protestant. You know, Protestant and Catholic, whatever. But once again, I'm, I know I'm making such an eloquent case. You're like, oh yeah, you sound real smart. Oh man, but. Yeah, all the Bible points to Jesus. And so that helps us understand what is the goal. Like, why is this written? You know, you, when you read a piece of literature, that, that is one thing you want to understand. And going back to English class, you have a thesis, right? The point of my paper is I illustrated in the beginning, and this is the thing that I'm trying to get at. Ultimately, I'm going to use examples. I'm going to use metaphors, similes, allusions, alliterations, all of the above, and much more. But this is the underlying, overarching both at the same time, different ways. One is underneath, one is over the top, you know, theme. And that's what, that's, that's his final point. And so really what this is, is just helping you build a con a contextual understanding. And so then when you realize that you say, okay, what's the point of this or that? And then you look at maybe certain debates and say, well, this is missing the point. Basically, you know, if you, we forget that point, we can start reading the Bible wrong with bad, with when misconstrue things because we're looking at it from the wrong, we're, we're reading it as a scientific historic, you know, to tell us to spoil something later talking about creation. He gets into that and the creation story is like, what is the point of Genesis one? Is it to tell us exactly how he made the world and give us the, the basically the quadratic equation of the world? Or is it to tell us who he is 
and set the stage for the rest of the Bible that points to his the story of God interacting with mankind and working to redeem everybody and give everyone a chance at redemption. Then it's very very then you then it reads differently. So um, and then getting into the subtitle now. So the objections that he takes head on is the Bible is anti-science. Oh, sorry. Actually, let me pause there. So those are the main four points because I know I probably took that over, took over 10 minutes. I'm not even going to look at time today. Uh, the Bible is a library, not a book. Uh, never read a Bible verse. The Bible was written for us, not to us. And then finally, all the Bible points to Jesus. So those are your, those are the four foundational points that set the stage for this entire book. And the main objections addressed is, you know, the Bible is anti-science. This is a common one. You think that science and faith are opposed. And I don't know, at certain points they could be, it's just, it's just kind of where they come in an impasse. It's not like they're necessarily opposed. It's just like sometimes there's, you know, there's that conversation of like, look, the part of this is faith. But at the same time, I firmly believe that the further we go into science the and, and, and the complexity of the world and seeing, you know, it's the smarter you get, the, the more you realize that you don't know. And so you realize how big it is. And at the end of the day, like when we, you know, see how infinitely big the universe is and understand that the, that was created by the creator who's infinitely bigger than that brings it into perspective for me personally. It's pro-violence. Um, and it's anti-women. And then it's pro-slavery, anti-shrimp, uh, and has bizarre commands. And then finally, that there it is intolerant for saying, you know, that this is the only way to get to heaven, which will all be addressed, right? So the anti-science, he focuses on the creation and all the different interpretations of that. Pro-violence, uh, a, a summation point is really kind of the main point, but we, we can get into the weeds later is that God did not create the violent scene. He didn't, he didn't come up. He didn't start this, right? He didn't start this fight. Uh, he addressed it systematically to move the needle towards, towards a less violent, more dignified, more equal, and more fair world and gave people more rights. And when you look at it in the full context, you see that. And this is specifically looking at the Old Testament God, which a lot of times is pitted as, you know, the vengeful, bloodthirsty, genocidal, anti-woman, pro-slavery God. When in actuality, when you look at what he was doing in the context of that time, he was the um, pro-women, anti-slavery, endlessly, seemingly endlessly patient, give you countless chances to, to, to get out scot-free um, God. But we'll get to that later. It's anti-woman. Um, so, you know, this is a common one too, talking about misogyny. Your wife submit to your husbands. That's what you hear all the time. Problem is, even my problem is, they don't, they don't even finish that verse personally. This is going to be a little aside. That's the most, probably the most common one, right? Is they, that verse so many times, that's all I hear of that verse. It doesn't even get finished. You know what it actually says? It says, wives submit to your husbands. <clears throat> Just and I think it says just as you know the church submits to Christ or whatever the body submits to Christ. It says, "Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church." And even when you just finish that verse and don't even get into the greater context, what do you see? Is you see well, and what we'll see later is too. A lot of times it's a translation problem with the English the words English language and the connotation they have now versus the Hebrew, the ancient Hebrew, which kind of could be seen in 
I don't know. It's just, it's an interesting language. But even with that, what you see is, hold on. Well, how did Christ love the church? Well, first of all, I mean, he kind of kicked off the whole church and Christian movement, but how did he do that? Oh yeah. He was, look at his entire life. He was a servant. He was homeless in a lot of ways. <laughs> so, so don't buy a home, be homeless. Um, no, but he was, he was a servant and he was always, always, you know, so compassionate to the least of these. And, but at the same time he spoke truth and he led and you know when he saw the the pharisees and the hypocrites within his own religious world and realm and his people supposedly he called that out so he you can say he was just and then ultimately what did he do he willingly an innocent man suffered one of the worst most painful deaths that you could do and separation from god the father to be able to do what Allow all of us, the church, a chance at redemption. Allow a chance for the church. And so when you take that into the perspective of marriage, what should guys do, right? Oh, we have to love our wives like that. And so paints for me, it just paints a very different picture. Be willing to, you know, we sacrifice all of ourselves, put their needs first. And, oh man, I am feeling so guilt-ridden right now <laughs> because, you know, we're following people, so we don't always do that, but. And, and and so that's that's just one small example. It's not necessarily addressed in the book. He there's also some other weird verses that talks about women being silent. If you have a question in church, wait until you get home to ask your husband. And I'll, I'll touch on those. Those are interesting, right? But yeah, it's anti-woman. They have to be silent, submit, and cannot speak in church or teach. And that is even a contentious one within the church about you know can women hold positions of leadership? And that's one that I'm currently wrestling with a lot. And then obviously pro-slavery, all that stuff. So. Looking at the Bible, like we said, it was written for us, not to us. It's a library. I talked about the theme. He, he, he does a good job. He provides visuals in the book, too, that are very helpful that you're not going to get here. You're going to get me describing his visual. But he, he breaks the, down the Bible into six acts. Uh, he says that, you know, you have creation story in Genesis. Then you have rebellion. Then you have God initiate redemption. Um, redemption provided to the Gospels. Mission, then a mission is provided to all nations, and then redemption is completed when the final coming. So, to break it down, you know, he creates in the first two chapters of Genesis, then humans rebel. Then in Genesis 3, through the rest of the Old Testament, is redemption initiated, and then provided in Matthew through John, and then Acts to Revelation 21 is the mission to all nations, and then Revelation 22 is the final redemption being complete, the process. So that's his six acts, and... Um, I think it's a very helpful way to view the Bible because, you know, we already talked about it. it's got different sections and it's got, you, you obviously have Old Testament versus New Testament. And this is just another way to help bring it into perspective, right? Uh, one big point is that God created a perfect world that man messed up and by rebelling, he brought into the world the following. This is another important foundational thing where he talks about, that's, that's another big point, right? A lot of times we look at God and be like, well, why is God doing this or allowing this? And it's like, imagine this. Imagine you, you know, you, you make a wonderful sculpture of something, like a wax sculpture, and then someone comes along and they burn all these blemishes. And then someone else comes along and says, well, why did he make such a crappy statue? And it's like, well, I made a perfect statue, a wonderful statue. Uh, but but then this hooligan or hooligans came along and they they you know took a torch lighter to it and put all these blemishes on it and now it's half melted and cruddy looking. But the third person, if they didn't know that, they would be like, "Well, this is a you're a terrible sculpture, right?" Kind of the same thing with God. So this is what man 
upon his rebellion in the fall and, and did to mess up his world. This, this is, these are the things that were introduced after that. Violence, murder, war, male domination over women, rape, abuse, polygamy, harems, concubines, um, ruining marriage, false gods. Um, so, you know, it's a polytheistic world and uh, slavery, ego and manipulations of all kinds of power or of all kinds to gain power, control and wealth. Those are, those are things that are all introduced or perverted, if you will, in his original perfect creation uh, that's, that we see is brought in. So starting in the Old Testament, and we'll start addressing some of these bigger points now too, we're going to start with slavery. So set the scene, right? So when looking at the Old Testament, when hearing objections, the first thing we have to remember is when and who they were written to. Um, so you have to understand, and this is, this is something important too to realize, is that Israel, you know, God, God made his promise, started to make the nation. They were, then they lived in the Egyptian world for 400 years. You have to think how many generations that goes through and how they get saturated. They get plucked from that by God. And then God, then what do you have to do with somebody who is recently freed from that sort of situation and that bondage is you have to say, all right, we're going to have to like debrief. And I mean, what do you have to do with you? If you go and you live in a country for a long time and then come back, what do you have to, you have to debrief usually you have to, you, otherwise you could, we know it as culture shock, right? Because if you go from one culture to another, you don't realize that you think, Oh yeah, I'm just going back to my normal life. But it's like, actually hold on. Or when you go somewhere for the first time, you kind of have to prep yourself. And a lot of times you can experience culture shock. And so you usually want to ease people into that. The same thing is true with God. He has to go, all right, we got to sit down. I got to rewire all this. I got to tell you about me. You guys, there's so much like you've been lied to. This is all wrong. We got to set the record straight, start from square one, wipe the slate clean, get you guys going on the path that I want you to go. Right. And this is between 1500 and 1000 BC. Uh, The world was a very different place. And uh, the norms and how things worked, very different. It was an ancient, violent, brutal, cruel, bloody place with no modern amenities. So once you know that, then you might read those a little bit differently. So uh, then what we have is when we look on the other side of things, the New Testament, they reaffirm commandments from the Old Testament, namely things from the moral law and acts as a good guide to help us understand what laws carry over and what don't. This is always a question, you know, how do we know... Do, do we follow all 613 laws in the Old Testament or, you know, we follow some but not the others? And this was a good point that I, I never had really a good answer to. I was like, I'm not sure. I just know that there are certain commandments in the New Testament and and that, that carry over through. But Jesus fulfilled the law because the law's purpose was to show us, like, if you want to earn your way to God, you have to abide by this, knowing that you can't uphold that standard. So, um. But this was a good kind of rule of thumb, if you will. It says, basically, look at the New Testament, see what Jesus brings up. And specifically, you know, it says, they say, what are, the, what are the greatest commandments? And he says, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And that's like the foundation for everything. And so that from there, then you can, you can jump off and go into, all right, so this means, should I do this? Should I not do that? And there are situations. So just knowing your Bible more and looking at it, but basically um, what Dan says in the book is like, all right, 
rules, there are some rules that get reaffirmed in the New Testament. They get brought up and say, hey, this is a rule. Follow this, right? Like, I think we can all agree the Ten Commandments, by and large, carry over and fall under those first, you know, two commandments that Jesus talks about. And do not murder, do not covet, all those things. Because, And what we know about human nature is those are giving in to our natural desires. So, all right, time to jump into the fun stuff. Okay, here we go. So the first big objection, you know, that we always hear about is uh, slavery. And you see slavery in the Old Testament, and you see God make rules around slavery. So first and foremost, I want to say when when he points out all these memes and these verses that are used that I'm not going to pull up here, but that you should definitely, that's why you should read the book, is understanding that until about 200 years ago, and even so in some parts of the world today, slavery is a blemish on humankind that has been going to the end of human history. One important fact I will say, though, too, is that we shouldn't, as we understand it in our modern context, meaning how, how it was per- carried out in America, sometimes is the same, but is not the, end, is not the only way that slavery has been practiced. There are other ways... Especially in an ancient world like that, if, for example, if you couldn't pay your debts, you'd enter um, slavery, quote unquote, slavery to that person. You'd become a servant until you could, and you'd work until you pay off that debt. Not like the American slave owners who would say, "Well, you can buy your freedom, but the debt to income ratio is all out of whack, and so you're it's realistically, you know, you get the lip service, but the practical way that you're supposed to be able to do this isn't actually um, an avenue at all." And a lot of times, I mean, it was like, you can't pay me. All right, you got to work for me, right? Go wash the dishes. And that's, and so that's something to understand is that when you read that word sometimes in the Bible and not, and I'm not saying this is, oh, that's what slavery is in the Bible. No, I'm just saying there's a little bit more nuance to it, right? Uh, but one thing that we see, the most common misconception when you see this brought up is that, oh, your Bible's pro-slavery. It's like, hold on. The Bible acknowledges slavery. It acknowledges things and and talks about things that were happening or references situations, hypotheticals that um, you know are how that are real situations that played out in whatever time it's talking about. But in no no way does God say you know take slaves or th- does he out does he command it or bring it into existence like we talked about. This was an evil introduced by man post fall, messing up God's perfect world. Right. He did not invent it, nor does he condone it. He works, but he works within it and works through it to provide stepping stones to move away from it and, and, and honestly move away from a slavery system. And if anything, you just have a respectful servant and, and works to paint slaves as human as well and remind his people of that. Right. And sometimes this is a hard truth. Slavery was the only, it was either starvation and death or go be so-and-so servant. Well, I'm, I'm going to use the word servant because it's more appropriate, but go indentured servitude under this person. And that's just the brutal, brutal truth, right? Uh, and here's one crazy fact that he pulls up in that too, is that in New, Test- in New Testament times, so we're talking only 2,000 years ago, not 3,000, 30, it's estimated that 30% of the population, one third were quote unquote slaves at that time. And so, I mean, just look how far society has progressed that we don't 
that doesn't have to be the case. You can make it on your own. You don't have to willingly enter into some kind of agreement like that, right? And a lot of times, and and it was in, in more indiscriminate. It wasn't race-based. Sure, there there was, and 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 there has been throughout history, but it is not all, going back to what I said earlier, it's not necessarily the end-all, be-all, right? Uh, it may sound silly, but... Um, <laughs> Oh man, I know I'm probably gonna catch you for this, but you know, and then, so this was one of the points that I alluded to talking about God, you know, why didn't he just abolish it for the ancient Israelites? And well, knowing that just in the new Testament times. And so the percentage was probably even great. I would say 40%, maybe almost half, who knows at some points in these ancient cultures, people were slaves. And so abolishment wasn't really an option because it was actually in kind of how their economic system worked and was also different than we understand it today. So that provides some good context around slavery. I'd say so. Don't you? Um, so that's just some general context and I, I'll, I'll get into some more details around that, uh, later a little bit, but for example, I'll talk about, well, I'll just go ahead and talk about them. One, one thing that talks about is that he brings up and I don't have the, I didn't write this reference down idiotically. Once again, keeping enough behind that paywall for Dan, so you can go buy his book and read it is, and it's in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, I think, but it talks about if you, um, I want to say if you kill your slave, if a man kills his slave, that man has to die, I think. So, which, looking at the context, what God was doing was instituting some form of dignity and justice and acknowledging that he was a slave, but that was a person and you killed him. And you now have to pay recompense for that. And that's something to understand. Because instead of... But that's the problem, though, is what we're doing is we're interjecting our our modernity into that situation and saying, well, that's just brutal. It's like, yeah, it's brutal for today's times, but it was actually it was actually just and, and um, I don't know, merciful, caring, whatever you want to call it. Um, a, you know, a bit of a civil rights uh, being instituted at that time. Another one is saying if you... If you injure a slave and like, say you, you know, they can't use that, their left arm anymore. What do you have to do? You have to free that slave now. And you want to talk about unheard of. You want to talk about progressive for that time. That's what that was. And, uh, but, but what you'll see is we'll see that verse and be like, whoa, God's condoning slavery. And it's like, hold on. Look at the context. No, no, no. God was instituting those rules because there weren't any rules like that at that time. You could do whatever you want with no consequence to your slave. And guess what? Now there's some consequence. You kill him. Oh, your head's on the chopping block. And I don't remember if that's exactly what it says. So I may be just off on that. I just want to put that disclaimer in there. I, it may not be die, but it may be like you have to pay something to his family or so. I don't remember. And I didn't write it down idiotically. This isn't a, this is my first book review, so bear with me. But, and then on the other hand, it's like, oh, or, or okay, well, you just injured him, but he's permanently injured and crippled now. You have to free him. Nope. You got to free him. You got to pay him and free him. And it's like, wait a minute. We have to do what? Like, I can picture the years of like being, well, hold on, but he's my, he's my slave. He's my servant. It's like, yeah, he's still a person and you need to treat him as such with some respect and dignity. He deserves that because he is also, he or she, you know, also 
my creation, my child, made in my image. So there you have it, right? Uh, another big objection and section is that, uh, you know, it's a boys club, right? The anti-women part of it. And this is just so patently false. This section is pretty big. And he does a good job of just explaining that, like, actually, God uses women, you see, in so many different ways. And when you look throughout the Bible, you see prominent women and you see God bucking the norm, Jesus bucking the norm. Because all all throughout the Bible, throughout the entire history of the Bible in which it took place and what's it covering, the time it's covering, women were second-class citizens. Women were a lot of times seen more as property than people. And they, I mean... In a lot of ways, they weren't allowed to work. They were, you know, they were, they could only, they had a very specific sphere of life that they filled and um, it was a problem. But you see that God actually kind of flipped that on its head, on its head in a lot of ways. So, uh, I mean, and, and one of the first examples that always comes up is that God created a helper for Adam. And helper, the word is actually, I believe, Nakash. Why didn't I put page numbers on all these? Well, anyways, the word, the Hebrew word used for helper in Genesis, when you actually see it, and this is once again a, a problem with translation. And so we have to go back to the original language. But that word that's used for, you know, God made went see made a helper for Adam. You know, we think of it as like a helper, an assistant, you're under me, you know, you're not, we're not on equal level. Well, when you actually look at the Hebrew word that he used, you see that the other places that that same word is used in the Bible is when God be in reference to God, helping a person, people, someone, or a situation. So it's actually helper is a bad way to think of it in the terms that we think of helper. It's like, hold on, God just helped me. Who is God, right? And he helped me. And that's the same word given for woman, Eve, if you will. So, man, suffice it to say that, uh, yeah, like they say, all behind every great man is a better woman. (laughs) Ain't that the truth, right? Um, And then going back again, we see that God didn't create these problems. This is a symptom of the fall. We see that there would be a, the power struggle, the forever power struggle until final redemption with, uh, between men and women. And so that is a, a human problem, a fallen problem, right? But a list, here's a list of some prominent women in the Bible. So just when you think that, oh, the Bible's very anti-woman or it's very against women, you look at these, you know, hand-picked, cherry-picked verses and you forget about all these prominent women such as Miriam, Deborah, Huldah, who I'd never heard of, uh, Proverbs, um, not, that's not a woman, but wisdom is described mostly as a woman in the beginning. And then Proverbs 31 is the, is basically praising women and, you know, talks about the ideal woman and a woman is this and that. And what is it doing? It's just like saying women are amazing, right? Joel, Esther, Mary, Mary Magdalene, Ruth, Rahab, all these are prominent women that are put in prominent positions by God. Miriam helped and, and is given credit in the Exodus of the Israelites Deborah was a judge for the nation of Israel in Judges. If you look it up, Hulda, don't remember. Like I said, it was, I think she was a prophet, but <laughs> uh, you have Esther also and Ruth being very prominent for their people. Mary Magdalene who traveled with Jesus and it's like, hold on. And, and then Rahab was a prostitute that was willing to work with God's people and saw God and God honored her, Right. 
So the biggest thing to remember is that in terms of the Bible, it was a patriarchal, like we hear the patriarchy today, it's not really a thing, especially when you compare it to them. That was a patriarchal society, right? As a man, you had your, your patriarchy, your household, right? And either you, know, you had daughters or you had wives um, of, your, of your sons that were married in and lived in your household. And that was how society operated, right? Jesus was actually weird and strange and odd because he hung out with women. He acknowledged women. The first person he revealed himself to as the Christ was a Samaritan outcast woman. Let that sink in for a moment. And then not only Jesus, um, and they weren't just, it wasn't just ever average women too, a lot of times that Jesus interacted with. It's scandalous a lot of times. Paul honors women. When you look throughout his, you know, he, he has benefactors that are women and, and praises certain women leaders in their church communities. Phoebe, who was a benefactor, Priscilla and Aquila, Junia, and they're mentioned in his letters, I think in Romans possibly, but this book unfortunately does not give an answer regarding the formal roles in regards to leader. Can women be leaders in church and hold leadership positions? Oh, so actually, sorry, let me back that up. It does say women can be leaders amongst the church, like the church body, right? Now, does it say hold formal positions such as head pastor, deacon, as we know it today, and get into all that mess, that legalistic mess? Um, no. And this book doesn't answer that question. Um, but the New Testament, when you see the word pastor, elder, um, etc., words like that, a lot of times those are when you go back to the original language, they are interchangeable and in referring to a shepherd or a guide. So a leader, not in a formal position, not, you know, not saying, Oh, I'm the head coach, but just saying, you know, Oh, this person is a mentor, someone in path, you know, almost like you'd have the, the veteran on the team kind of situation, right? It's more informal. So, um, going back to the old Testament then, so that's, that's, that's one, I mean, there's, there's a, for starters, right? Going back to the Old Testament, one that he pulled up and I think is prominent and I will talk in depth on is when he talks about, there's a Deuteronomy, on this one I do have the reference, Deuteronomy 22, 28, and 29. If a man happens to meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married and rapes her and they are discovered, he is to pay her father 50 shekels, a dowry, he must marry the woman for he has violated her. He can never divorce her as long as he lives. So the meme that he shows is saying a raper, a rapist has to, ma- or sorry, a raped woman has to marry her rapist, which if you were listening at all and actually read that text, you see that everything is directed at the man. These instructions are given to the man. And what we're doing is then we're just quickly extrapolating and misconstruing it to say, oh, that means a woman has to marry a rapist. No, 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 it didn't say anything about that. It said the man, he has to pay the dowry, pay the father, pay what you normally would have to pay to a family to be able to even marry a daughter because he's robbed her of that. And he must, he must then take her in marriage. And guess what? He can never divorce her. So in our modern context, we think this is violent and crazy. But in the, when you understand the ancient context here you understand that in that culture if you're not a virgin and you're unmarried you have now basically that is in in that time for women that was the path to success you wanted to marry 
into a good family, marry a good man, and that's how you'd prosper and could live a good life and have a family, right? And have kids of your own, et cetera, et cetera. But when you found yourself in this position, right? Typically, you had to be a virgin. You'd be betrothed to be married. And if you weren't a virgin, that was scandalous then. Then guess what? You wouldn't marry a good man. Sometimes you wouldn't be married. And sometimes that would mean you'd be kicked out of your father's house or at the time, father's tent, right? And you'd be out on your own. Well, guess what? You can't work and hold down a normal trade. No one's going to do that. And people didn't respect women like that. You're not going to find a husband. So what are you're homeless and on the street and now literally in some ways, it's kind of a death sentence. And so in that time, you know, we know that women are second class citizens. So men, I'm sure could get away with rape, right? So they could go and rape, no consequences, go about their life and go, go marry whoever they wanted to marry. But God steps in and says, no, 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 no. If you're going to commit this atrocity, if you're going to bring this atrocity into my world that you screwed up, you're going to have to pay for it, right? And the other kicker on this is that she had the option to not accept his marriage. But he had no option but to offer to marry her. He had to pursue that. So this is a very important distinction that, honestly, in the text, you can see that right away. You can say, if he rapes her and it gets found out, he has to do all of these things. She has to do none of these. She is the victim. But she needs protections. And then what does that act as amongst the Israelites? A deterrent for rape. Because guess what? If you were once in a time where you could get away with it willy-nilly, now you can't. And now you have to consider that. Now there's consequences. Now there's a deterrent. So pretty quickly, and especially with a seemingly pretty brutal verse, it gets dispelled once you understand any kind of context at all. And that's why my main analysis was that a lot of the critiques that you find are shallow misunderstandings, misinterpretations, misreadings, or misconstruings of Scripture. Um, So... I already kind of talked about this, but the, you know, the Bible mentions the, a lot of these things, such as, and specifically related to women, concubines, many wives, but it doesn't promote or condone it. Solomon, the wisest man alive, supposedly, you know, had 900 concubines or something like that, or, and, or 300 wives and 700, I don't know, he, a, a stupid amount, right? But when you look at the Bible, you look at its flawed people, God used, but that does not stop God. He's an unstoppable wave, right? And then Jesus, though, is actually asked when he's asked about divorce and the Pharisees trying to trap him in one of their classic situations. They say, you know, hey, he, hey, Jesus, what is, you know, is it lawful to divorce? You know, it's lawful for a man to divorce his wife. And what does Jesus do? He refers to pre-fall. He says, this is how God designed it. And this is how we've screwed it up. And then he akins you know, divorce and, and such to adultery and things like that and saying, and says, we screwed it up and basically doesn't necessarily answer their question because he understands it's a trap, right? Well, then jump back to the new Testament. And this is probably what we hear more often is there are common verses in Corinthians and Timothy regarding women in the church that are written to address specific problems. Those churches were facing regarding the cultures they were in. We know this because elsewhere in the same books, we see Paul not delineating between men and women, teaching, preaching, singing, and using spiritual gifts. So the two points that we're talking about here, I don't have the references. They're in the book. You have to read it. it is, uh, there's one, I, I think the Corinthians one, is, it says, you know, it is best for a woman to stay silent whilst, so basically talk about interrupt, you know, stay silent and don't 
speak up in the church when it's being taught. And part of the context here is that he's referring to in a specific situation, it is better to be quiet. And when you look at the cultural context around that, in that time, interrupting a teacher was seen as wildly disrespectful and taboo. If you were someone who went to so-and-so to learn something, you were expected when the teacher was teaching to be absolutely silent and listen and just absorb, right? And we can all agree that it's better to listen when you don't know, right? So this is one explanation for that verse is that he's saying, hey, you guys in the Corinth, in the church in Corinth, stop doing this. Don't do this. We need to have some form of decorum. And that's what he was talking about. And another thing that it could be regarding is you had lots of people converting, right? And they were coming from the, all these pagan cultures. And so he, Paul's, and it can be troublesome if he's saying, listen and learn and learn your new religion before you start interjecting and speaking up and trying to ask all these questions. Sit back and learn the orthodoxy first before you start speaking up, especially in church. So you may not like that explanation. That's what the book gives. And I find it fine. And one other funny cultural option too, is that in some synagogues at the time, men and women sat in different sections. So the men would sit in this section, the women sit in that section. Oh, well, so this is referring to the Timothy one where it's like men, if women, if you have a question, wait till you get home, ask your husband. You're like, wow, disrespectful. So the guys can just ask questions. No, here's what, here's what, here's, here's what was the case in a lot of those churches. Women sitting in this section over here, men sitting in that section over there. Now imagine that for your church today. And then imagine your wife wants to ask you a question. What does she have to do? And no, she doesn't scurry. Even if she does have to get up and scurry over and ask you a question, it is distracting. But secondarily, he said, it was very likely that she would just stand up and yell at you. So my wife would go, hey, husband, so what does he mean by this? In the middle of, say, sermon, reading, preaching, teaching, whatever. Yeah, that's not cool. So understanding that context, you go, I see what he was talking about. And that comes back again to it's written for us, not to us. So we have to be careful because we convolute those two sometimes. So next section, but that's, that's talking about basically, you know, that's the women, right? It's a, it's seen a lot of times it's portrayed as a boys club and it's misogynistic. And once again, I think that mainly comes from us interjecting our current status in the world and our morals into an ancient culture and context where the world was very different. And when we understand them within the context, then we understand that actually the Bible was kind of radically, was radically for women in a time where that was completely unheard of. Women didn't have a voice. Women didn't have right to anything. Yet Jesus, when he's resurrected, he first appears to who? Women. And what does it reference? That women, and what do we know in that time? That women's testimonies weren't trusted a woman could witness a murder. And she said, I witnessed a murder. And they say, you're a woman. I don't believe you. But yet that's who he resurrected. That's who he revealed himself to the Christ as first. Is this a Samaritan woman at the well? So you want to talk about the Bible? It's anti-woman. I see a very different Bible. I see one's very pro-woman. And we can get into specific debates about, you know, should women be allowed in leadership? And I think, I mean, that's what you, that's why you see a lot of branches of denominations and such. And, I'm not sure how I feel about it, but I'm here to review a book. I can talk about that. So there's that summation of, you know, the, the boys club Bible. And we have the Bible versus science, right? And what he really uses here is the creation story. Cause I think that's the most common and prevalent one is the debate. And I remember being wildly confused about this in high school and be like, well, okay, so 
you know, the whole, I remember growing up and talking about evolution. Evolution was the devil. Evolution was secular. God, no, evolution was false. We have to believe the Bible. And then now I understand it's like, well, actually there's a viable option where God used evolution. And, um, if I believe that science points us ever more towards God, then, and, and if, and, and if we find the evolution to be more true and true, then outside of the point for me, there's a human cutoff. I think we are so distinct that the, you know, evolving from apes or whatnot, as far as animals go, absolutely. As far as this world goes. Yeah, absolutely. Things adapt and change. We know that on a small scale. Right. And I mean, just, that's why people have different, different levels of melanin where they live. Right. That's why Northern European descent people like me are pale and people descended from, I don't know, Kenya, dark, very Arctic circle, not getting a lot of sun. You're also bundled up because it's freezing versus Africa. It's like, man, I can't take enough clothes off. <laughs> but uh, he hones in on the creation store and he, and he provides a lot of the popular creation theories within the Christian realm. And honestly, I didn't, it was funny. So I'll tell you this. I don't believe the, I don't take Genesis literally. The six days. Here's the, I don't take the six-day, 24-hour thing, literally. Although it could be true, but really my point is, why does that matter necessarily? Because to me, if you remember the foundational points, that comes back to is like, what is the purpose of that writing? It's not to tell us that that, it's not to give us that answer to the forever question of, you know, how, what was the creation of everything like? It's, it's irrelevant, right? Because the Bible points to Jesus. That's not the purpose of that writing. And so we're interjecting questions that can't be answered by that. Um, so you have young earth, other things, is the talking snake, the order in which things were created, uh, which all missed the point of the creation story. Like I said, right? The point of the creation story is show us who God is, what's he like and how he views and interacts with his creation. So big question, you know, was, was it seven or six 24 hour days? Could work. Um, yeah, but I don't care and I don't think it really matters. Questions. And so what he does is he establishes, here's the questions that he basically says, we're asking the wrong questions when we look at this. A lot of times when we look at Bible versus science and you look at the gospels and there's different accounts and you understand that it's actually the reason they're writing it in this such way is to convey this certain message or allude back to this old Testament scripture and not that it's supposed to be corroborated eyewitness accounts. But there is one interesting podcast I've mentioned before where it's like a criminal, a guy who was a former cold case. And he goes, actually when he, and he talks about his faith journey, he goes, when I started reading the gospels and he goes, and I saw that there were slight variations in all the accounts. He goes, that made more sense to me because he goes, if you understand anything about eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses accounts always vary slightly. It's not identical. Because I wouldn't count, you need corroboration of that. And you can, you can have the same main story, but with, oh, there were four people instead of three. Well, you were standing at this angle versus that angle. You're just trying to get a general picture, right? He goes, if I was trying to fabricate a religion, you know, and do this and wanted to be infallible, then I would, he goes, naturally, we'd probably want to synchronize them and they'd all be exactly precise. And he goes, and then you could be skeptical. So it was kind of interesting. I never heard that before and never thought of that because I'm not a cop. But here's questions that the creation story was written to answer. Are we going to survive? And so what, when, where, and who was creation story written to? It was written in the desert 
to ancient Israel who was just freed 400 years of slavery. That's the context in, in which we're talking. So that, that'll make these questions make some sense. Are we going to survive this desert? Is there really only one God? What do we have to do to please this God? What or who do we worship? How do we worship? Do we believe the Egyptian creation story? And another thing to think about is that God's creation story purposefully had context, had certain, was, was presented in such that it would have made sense in how it alluded to other creation stories at the time, meaning or how it paralleled with him. It's like, oh, like he talks about this thing and given references that they would have understood. God meets us where we're at, right? Questions it was not meant to answer. How old is the earth? Was it six 24-hour days? Is evolution true? Did Noah's Ark have dinosaurs? Was there a talking snake? Did Adam have a belly button? (laughs) That last one's fun. But these are all questions that we commonly talk about and can get caught up debating. But more and more, I find myself, I don't care. It's kind of like the whole end of the world. Like, oh, is this a sign of the end? And it's like, actually, when you read it, God says the signs that the people he's writing to are going to see all of the signs before they're gone. And the whole point of that is saying we don't know when it's going to come. Same thing with creation, right? He's not out to answer these questions for us. He's out to show us who he is. These questions would be awesome to know, and I can't wait to know them one day when we full redemption is realized, when I'm dead and go to heaven, or if it comes before then. Great. But that's not the point of this, and that's not supposed to be what's supposed to be my focus in life, right? So, and then talking about the cultural relevance of his creation story that of the creation story he gave the Israelites is a lot of them were counterpoints to the other creation stories at the time, especially the Egyptian one that they would have been presented. There was only one God who created everything, not many. All the other creation stories typically deal with multiple gods interacting. There's only one. He is the one and only source. God has a personal relationship with his people. Most of the other gods and other creation stories is kind of this impersonal, you work for me type thing. Uh, But God is saying, I created you in my image and want to dwell with you. This God is all powerful and doesn't need other gods. If if, If he created it all, then guess what? He doesn't need any of these other gods. God made us as stewards, not his servants like other gods. So you see the relationship between all these other creation stories or um, other, you can call them ancient religions or pagan religions, that is the gods, you know, they need so much from the humans and you have to do all these works and these rituals and it's like we are serving you. and But, but almost in kind of that slavery, when you see with God, it's like, yes, he wants our service and wants us to walk in his statutes to live right because he knows what's best for us because... Um, he created us, and we are made in his image. And so he tries to set us up in a way, and he, and, you, and, and he does it in a way of having a personal relationship with you, not saying, you are my servant, right? And looking down on you. But uh, you have to also remember that their understanding of the world, they didn't have any of the modernity. So these questions that we ask that have to do with like what we know now about modern science, about we've been in space, moon, sun, all that stuff— Here's something interesting that I never thought about, but they they looked up at the sky, saw it was blue, so they assumed, and to their credit, I probably would have assumed the same thing, that there was water above it. So you read about waters above and below. It's God describing, saying, the sky, you know, the waters above. That was their common vernacular. Now, we can have a debate about whether we're waters above, you know, pre-flood, what all that stuff, 
Doesn't matter. But in that time, and he provide he provides some great graphics too that show you that give you a visual of like here's what they thought the world looked like. They thought it was flat, of course, and they thought that there was the deep, which was the waters under the earth, basically, and then the sky's blue is because there was water up there. Makes sense to me, right? And the earth is flat. Well, because, yeah, it's flat. You walk on flat ground. I think we all know that one. That one is kind of resurfaced. So then the question comes up, why would he not correct their misconceptions? Why would he? Well, because that's not the point of it. The point is to relate to them, to meet them where they're at, speak in a way that they would understand. To then build that relationship and that priesthood to bring redemption for the world. It's not to, oh, here's, well, here's, here's your quadratic equation. Yeah. And that's something that you continually see throughout the Bible, though, and you see with Jesus, too, in Christianity, is that God meets you where you're at, in your brokenness, to bring you to redemption. So, Galileo has a great quote, quote that he uses in one of his, uh, to get off this section, it says, the Bible teaches us how to get to heaven, not how the heavens go. And that's the best way to sum it up, really. When you look at it. So it's like, well, it's anti-science. It's like the Bible isn't trying to be a science textbook. The Bible is trying to be, point us to Jesus, really, and the one true God and redemption. It's, it's not, we can, sure, extrapolate some science and whatnot from it, but it's not trying to do that. So when we try and act like it's, they're opposed, it's like, it's not, it's not even the point, right? You might as well treat your English literature book as a science textbook. Oh, no, that wouldn't work. Or vice versa. Oh, no, that wouldn't work. Because that's not the point of them. The point is to teach you the English language, not to teach you physical science or chemistry. Right? So, if you want to... And I don't know if I want to go into the detail of that. So, just to give you the overview, and then we'll get into the different uh, theories that he talks about, is creation order um so day one light and earth day two separate the waters above and below day three dry land and plants day four sun moon plants and stars yeah they come much after light and day and night and stuff it's kind of weird right day five flying and sea creatures not flying sea creatures day six land animals and man and so it's like that's kind of weird right god's focus in creation stories to show he has purpose and design and he created it all and what did he do they they reference like chaos nothingness the absence of absent of light and what did he do he brought order to everything and made a perfect world out of it and that is more the point than six 24-hour days or was the earth six thousand years old or is it six million six billion years old mm. so here's your creation theories you have the literal interpretation the young earth theory of the that based on the Bible and the timeline of everything we know and the genealogies that we follow, Earth is between six and 10,000 years old. Personally, that is one that I do not subscribe to in a lot of ways. And like I said, I really don't care at the end of the day, but that one I don't necessarily subscribe to because I think we're, once again, we're interjecting things into the Bible and asking questions about the Bible, trying to solve, answer questions using the Bible that the Bible is not intended to answer. So, uh, but that is one that is held and it has its different theories. Uh, the, there's the appearance of age, meaning God made it. Basically, you know, when he, got, when he made Adam and Eve, they were full grown, right? Full grown adults. So why couldn't he have done the same with the earth? That one I, I kind of like in some ways. Once again, I ultimately don't care, so I'm not going to die on this hill. But 
that one is more the one that I've gravitated to my entire life is that he created, yeah, so sure, it could be 10,000 years old. And then he created it to look like it was 10 billion years old. And that's fine. But at the same time, when you look at that one, that would almost seem like God would be deceptive, like deceptive practices. Oh, I just made it old. And so it brings into question is like, why would he, wouldn't that almost be misleading? And then, okay, because then he knows that through science, we're going to say it's this old. And then God's going to say, no, it's only this old. And so that actually doesn't work within the character of God. If you believe that he reveals himself through us. And as we look deeper and deeper into the world and the universe, that it actually points back to the creator. So that one, that's, I've kind of moved away from that. But the, the important thing to remember about all this is that if he is really God, and he is all powerful and all knowing and created all of this. He could have done any one of this. We, we, we can't put human limitations. This is the thing that annoys me the most. We put human, we try and fit God into a human box, into what we understand in our limitations because we can comprehend. But God is incomprehensible at the end of the day. And so we are like a 2D image of a 3D being, basically. We can't understand that, that you know, the three-dimensional being. It's a classic picture, Christianese comparison. And so why, so we have to look at, and, and so yes, it's, we have to understand it is possible, but then I like what he does there. He says like, why would God do it that way with the appearance of age? Because that would be misleading, right? And Dan says, you know, I believe that science and, and knowledge in a lot of ways does point us back to God and the creator. And he would, you know, but we do live in a fallen world too. So there's many wrong paths. I mean, look at Galileo at the time was the church was, he was trying to say, you know, we, we go around the sun, not vice versa. And, and he was considered a heretic. So yeah, I mean, just goes to show you science can be wrong and has been wrong historically. So we should always be skeptical, but at the same time, you know, as we realize the universe, how big the universe is and it's like, we're the only life. In a lot of ways, to me, that's always been a kind of a justification for like, that makes sense for God to do that, to be like, because the universe is really God showing how big he is or (laughs) how small we are in comparison. It's a good size comparison, but yeah, the appearance of age, um, he, he, you know, he brings up that good point that it's kind of deceptive, but uh, then we have the gap. So basically says there's a giant gap of time, like millions, billions of years, whatever, between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. And I think you'd extrapolate that to other ones as well. And yeah, sure, why not? But once again, I'm going to say this at nauseum. Not a hill I'm really trying to die on by any means, so sure, yeah. Um, I don't really care about that one. That one, why not? Um... Then there's the preparing the garden and promised land, which is similar to the gap theory, which is basically like there's a long period of time and God allowed nature to kind of develop to the garden of Eden and the promised land to develop. And then he starts his story kind of waits for conditions to get right. Once again, sure. Why not? I kind of like that one personally, because it's more about what the point of the Bible is than trying to interject science, right? The day-age theory, which this one is often referenced, uh, I can't, I don't have it on hand, so I'm not going to look it up, but there's, in the New Testament, I think it's maybe in Hebrews or something, where it's like a, a, and it's in one of the famous songs, worship songs, but that, you know, day to God is like a 
10,000 years to us. And so they say that each day it's a metaphor and it, and it covers, you know, 10,000, 1 million, 50 million years, whatever, what have you. Sure. Why not? <laughs> That's my response to all of these. That one actually was probably the one. So I said the appearance of age was probably the one that I described to most of my life, but it was actually probably more the day age theory. Um, that gimme, I'll stop saying, um, God's temple. So this one, I also like, it was a new one to me. I was like, I hadn't really heard it, but basically it's same thing from a different angle. He says, this is saying it's about God discussing that he was building a place to dwell in. He was building his house. Here's, here's what I did. He's not telling you how long it took me, but I'm telling you the process. First, I built the foundation, and then I did the framing, and then I did insulation and wiring and plumbing and all this stuff, right? And it's like, oh, okay, you told me how you do it, but you didn't say, well, how long did each one of those take you? Oh, I'm not saying, right? I'm telling you how I did it. Oh, okay, interesting, right? Now, I like that one because, once again, it go, goes back to, I think, what more of the point of that is, or not more of the point, what the point of that is. Then finally, the big bugaboo taboo on evolution creation. But, but, but growing up, I was told evolution is the devil, Bobby. Yes, and that's true. And evolution is the devil, Bobby. Uh, it's not. But I will say, in the time that I was growing up, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, I mean, it was like evolution versus Bible versus creationism. I'm like, I'm, they can kind of coexist, Venn diagram much? I mean, to me, why couldn't God use? We, we know that evolution on some scale does happen. Things adapt, change, depending on what areas. Look at the melanin. I'm a Nordic person. Ancestrally, we are from the Arctic Circle. God bless us. Uh, where certain times of year, not very much sun, but also so cold. You're always wearing clothes. Not very much melanin. Go to Kenya, right on the equator, basically. And sun hot all the time. You can't take off enough clothes like <laughs> to be comfortable there. And as such, they are very, very dark people. Not in not like in a spiritual sense, but literally just in their skin. They're dark because lots of sun and so more melanin over time. And that's why we have all the different races that we have. So, yeah, evolution doesn't have to be a big, bad boogeyman for Christianity. Um, because really, once again, it'll, it sums up, so I'd be curious to know what one you believe, but it sums up this quote that I've got from, he pulls a great quote from Billy Graham that I think sums this whole discussion debate up, but personally, I don't really know which one I, I don't care. I don't, I really don't, I don't think it's six, I don't think it's the appearance of age or I don't really take it that literally, although he could do that. The gap, for sure, preparing the garden and promised land, and then as well as God's temple theory, both like those a lot. Day age, yeah, why not? Also some evolution. No, I say evolution up to a point because we are distinct, but let's just, let's hear from America's pastor, Billy Graham. And this is from the book, Dan pulls it out, I bracket it, starred, underlined parts of it, is really, really good. But it sums this whole thing up really well. So I'm just going to read it. He says, oh, I don't think there's any conflict at all between science today and the scriptures. I think that we have misinterpreted the scriptures many times and we've tried to make the scriptures say things that they weren't meant to say. And I think we have made a mistake by thinking that the Bible is a scientific book. And then here's the parts that I underlined. The Bible is not a book of science. The Bible is a book of redemption. And of course, I accept the creation story. 
I believe that God did create the universe. I believe he created man. And whether it came by an evolutionary process and at a certain point he took this person or this being and made him a living soul or not, does not change the fact that God did create man. And so Billy, of course, sums it up so, so well in saying that we're just missing the point. And that's really what this is. So, and that's why I really don't care <laughs> personally. And you might care and be interested, but this is, these are not the questions you're looking for. <laughs> it's almost like these are not the answers you're looking for, but that's how he breaks down creation. I think it's very, very good. And I think, unfortunately, there's a lot of division around creation stories and people get really, I mean, just entrenched in, well, I believe this, or I read it super literally, or I, this, and it's like, does it, I, when there's things like this around Christianity or the Bible, I say these are fun to think about slash talk about, but not, but, but have no effect on my salvation or redemption or the main point at hand. They're tertiary tangents. So a couple of things to as well in the creation story that we see that I guess are brought up and well, one, yes. The other one I never really saw. I've never really seen brought up or has been brought up towards me, but I don't know why not. So first and foremost is the rib woman was woman made from a rib. So providing us with this picture that out of man came woman, which is true, but not in the way that I think a lot of times we take this text to mean. And so therefore, woman is slightly lesser than man. When in actuality, we already talked about the helper thing, right? So, autocorrect here on Google Docs decided to play a prank on me. So, this is another one that goes back to the Hebrew word. And the Hebrew word, unlike my document says, is not Tesla. It is Tsela, so switch the E and the S around, T-S-E-L-A. Tsela, I don't know if I'm saying that right, Salah, meaning side. And we see, where else do we see this? So we're playing the Hebrew word game again. Once again, it's another translation issue. It says rib or side, depending on what translation. So you think literally, when in actuality, I think it means it more in a spiritual sense than anything else. But what we see is we see this word, found elsewhere in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in Exodus, referring to the differing sides of the Ark of the Covenant. So once again, word used around women is also only really used to describe God elsewhere. And I think that's on purpose sometimes to remind us men, us misogynist, chauvinistic pigs, that uh, women are kind of a big deal and maybe more of a big deal than us. So, all in all, the word has a translate translated really means opposite. I'm sorry, this is just uh, you're. I might get roasted for this, but this is what it says: opposite but equal sides. So separate but equal. <laughs> to bring that joke into. Light. Oh man, now and now you might have a real issue with that, but that is what it means in referring to man and woman, right? Is out of his side, it means a separate but equal side of what? Of man at large, meaning human. And so then he created woman. So I have a description that I took from Baymont Podcast that probably came from one of the rabbis that Marty Solomon studied under, so you can go find it for yourself, because I don't remember where it's at, but it's probably in session one when he's talking about it. 
when they're talking about creation. But this is the best illustration that I that I found personally for describing the relationship in regards to creation and man and woman and is one over the other and how that works and well woman was taken out of man and so what does that mean and like I said I think it's more of a spiritual thing but this illustration provides a good example of what this equal but opposite sides mean you take say you have two identical boards two by fours and you stand them up and lean them against each other they make kind of a you could say a some might say a a frame or a triangle whatever and you pull one of the boards away they are opposing each other but at the same time holding each other up you take one out the other one falls over you you know you you push from one side they'll topple over and that is man and woman equal identical sort of not 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 physically it's not what we're talking about but but identical and you were talking spiritual and kind of a a deeper philosophical meaning right identical but opposite sides that oppose yet support and one cannot stand on its own without the other and i'm probably not even getting this analogy this illustration like proper explanation like it needs but that's what I remember, right? So this is, but this is how God created man and woman. And you see that in, when you look in the translation, you say, oh, it's talking about, you know, there's sides of the Ark of the Covenant. There's a left side, there's a right side. There's one, there's man, there's woman. They're, they're, they're just different sides of the same thing. And that's what we see. And I mean, that's why you see in general, you see different traits naturally fleshing themselves out, pun intended, in men versus women, vice versa. So there's, there's your rib woman explanation if you've ever come across that. Then finally, the talking snake. So this one was interesting because I never really thought much about this one personally, but he says, you know, there's a talking, he brings up memes and stuff. It's like, there's a talking snake in the Bible. How ridiculous. And it's like, okay, maybe we should address this. So what is it, right? First and foremost, term is serpent, not snake. Very important delineation. We use those interchangeably, but they would have seen that as very different things. The Hebrew word is nakash, if I'm saying that right. And it actually has three translations depending on what, in what way it's used. If, when it's a noun, it means serpent or serpent-like figure. And when it's a verb, it means to divine or the diviner. When it's an adjective, it means shining or shining one. So put all three of those together and you have a shining divine serpent that is the diviner or to divine. And so what we see is God building an image of something that's a serpent-like figure. And they would have known serpents because serpent... I think serpent was more of a cultural reference to mean crafty, right? But there's a serpent and they are a shining figure. Because what we know is we know that he's a fallen heavenly being. You have the heavenly beings, you have humans. Heavenly beings are God's angels and heavenly hosts. And Satan rebelled because he wanted to be like God, greater than God. And so now he's down here, but we know that, especially at that time, pre-fall, it's God dwelled with man. So why would his heavenly host, everything was together in harmony in one. And we even know in the Old Testament, we have the Nephilim, which I don't know very much, or Nephilim, don't know very much at all about, but they're, you know, some tied of the sons of God or whatnot and all this confusing, it's fun, fun, fun thing about stuff, but not pertinent to salvation type stuff, you know? And... So that's what we have. And so you see, when you actually dive into the information, you see, 
oh, it's not a snake as we understand it, once again using our modern understanding of something and interjecting it into an ancient context, wrongly so, is what we're doing. And so we see it's okay. And once again, the point of the story is not to say there was a talking snake here. It's like God was talking to his people at that time, trying to provide, speak their language, use terms they would understand, use, use illustrations they would understand to show them how we got to where we were or how they got to where they were, like at large, the world, right? And that was a pivotal point. So that was the point of that, right? But that is the science side of things. I know, it's a lot, and here we are, going deep. So, never done a book review, so, yeah, well, who says it can't be two hours? 15-minute book review? Yeah, no, um, sorry, you get the in-depth one with me. I don't know anything short. All right, final, I believe this is the final point. Ugh. Yeah, well, this is a home stretch. Can I say home stretch? Oh, gosh. We have my God can beat up your God is kind of the section. He is the only way to heaven. This and this does attack something, or, you know, approach something that you do hear nowadays. I think more than in, more than ever, and I think that's specifically a part of just Christianity being vilified in general, but also um, just a once again a new age postmodernist fundamental shallow misunderstanding, oversimplification, reductionist view of religion at large, but specifically Christianity. Is that another it's like, man, how closed-minded and intolerant to think that yours is the right religion and the only way to heaven. It's like, first of all, if you look into my religion at all, specifically Christianity, you would understand how much he proclaims that he is the only he's the one true God. He's the only way to get redemption. Jesus is the only way, and he makes that clear. And so if I don't take, if I don't believe that and hold that view, guess what? I'm, that, that is like a fundamental foundational view to Christianity. So if you claim Christianity, but cra- claim there's multiple ways, and this is going to sound very, very harsh, it might take this as harsh, but it's like, you're actually, you're holding two opposing things. You're not, you're trying to light ice on fire without any help of, like gasoline or something that actually burns, right? It doesn't work. You can't do it. So it's like I either have to accept that or I don't believe it at all. Like it's it's false. That's either true or Christianity is totally false. There's no in between. And once again, it's like, yeah, it's an all or nothing type thing. And it's like, yeah, that's what it is. But actually when you look into a lot of religions, and in this section too, he does provide like a timeline of when prominent world religions started that's very helpful. But then also talks about, he addresses this, you know, how people say that. And once again, he talks about, it's like, well, they sound same and they might have some similar teachings. But when you actually dig into any one of them or all of them, you find that they are vastly different and that all of them generally hold the stance that this is the correct way. Which for me, when you actually start to think about religion, you go, why, why would it make sense to, make, to design a religion and be like, but there's other ways. I don't know everything outside of the fact just to sound like you're the most tolerant, open, progressive one, when in actuality, it's like, no, 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 if these are supposed to be religions, foundational views, fundamental beliefs for people, then you want to have that fundamental, like, security, concrete belief that this is the right one. Because otherwise, I'm just going to be apathetic. What, what incentive? There's no incentive then to follow it outside of maybe just it's good teachings, but that's a whole other discussion. 
the real point is that if we don't, if Christians don't hold this belief, the belief, the entire faith falls apart, right? And when you look at the Bible, it's consistent. Creation story starts with one God who created everything. So, I mean, he literally kicks it off by saying, hey, I'm the real deal. <laughs> Here's an illustration for you. It's like this, right? I'm the real Slim Shady. You got a bunch of people in the room saying, I'm Slim Shady, I'm Slim Shady. But it's like, well, the real Slim Shady, please stand up. And, everyone's, and there's really only one Slim Shady, right? You're welcome for bringing Eminem into my discussion about God and specifically using him in reference, using his song, The Real Slim Shady, to talk about how God claims he's one true God. Don't you just want to just come to church with me now? <laughs> You're welcome. But, Yeah. And after the fall, what we see, according to this, according to creation, is we see pluralism or polytheism take place. People spread out over the earth, and they and they create their own gods or worship their own gods. But God says, "No, look, this is once again a symptom of the fall." So let's talk timeline of religions. This is interesting. There's one religion. That predates Judaism. One. And it's only by 60 years. So, Hinduism. And it is Hinduism. 1500 BC. Then you have Judaism. 1440 BC. Shinto at 660. Taoism at 600 BC. These are BC. Buddhism at 563 BC. Then we move into AD. Christianity at 30 AD. Roughly. Um, but Christianity it has a direct link and clear tie to Judaism. That is an important note. You might say, well, Christianity was only founded then. I was like, do you not understand that Christ's entire life was using the Hebrew scriptures and claiming that that is? So it's like, that's that's where it gets weird with the relationship with Judaism and Christianity. It's like, Christianity is an outgrowth of Judaism. So Christianity, as we know, it started in 30 AD, but its roots and its foundation are found in 1440 B.C. But anyways, and then ready for this? Islam at 622 A.D. Wow, so way later, okay? And an anal- the illustration that he provides to, to kind of dispel this whole it's intolerant, New Age postmodernist objection, which, by the way, gets thrown at Christianity, but could be thrown at any one of the religions because they all kind of fall into that same bucket. Is he says, it's like, look, so if I have a house where me and my family live, he goes, I have a key to that house. And there's only one key. And he says, it isn't intolerant to say there's only one key to my house. There's only one key that works to get into my house. And that kind of brings it into perspective. Like, that's what God is saying. He's like, I created the world. Here's my kingdom. There's only one way to get into my kingdom. These other ways are, are per they're 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 perverted views or misguided you know they're just off the mark views of me what you're looking for is me you know this is the house right and it's true right it's not nobody nobody thinks it's intolerant that there's only one key that works for your car your car key only works for your car even though me and my best friend both have f-150s but his key only works for his truck and my key only works for my truck not intolerant just is in a fact right so um, got a bunch of verses here that I'm not going to read because we're already so deep. Um, but he, there's a bunch of verses he provides in the New Testament where it's talking about or referencing that 
There is like that Christ is the only way, and this is the only correct way to get to heaven to be in God's kingdom, the one true God. And I mean, here there's just six verses, right? Uh, from First Timothy, Acts, First John, Matthew, and then two in John. But John is really where you find it. But one one super cool tool that he talks about, he uses is the mountain, right? And he uses the illustration of like, okay, people view it as there's one mountain, God's at the top, or whatever you want to call it, and then there's many different paths. But then he, as he goes through the explanation, which I can't do properly, um, and I'm gone so long at this point, there's no point, right? But he says it addresses three questions. Who is God? Who is Jesus? And what do you make of the afterlife? That's the the key to it. And he, he, he say, he, he, I'm not, I can't draw, but he says he, you know, if he's talking with someone, he'll draw like on a napkin or a piece of paper and show you that really when you start breaking that down and, and looking in, like I've said this whole time, when you look into things, start digging deeper and not just in Christianity here, but when, throughout all the religions, you see they're all different mountains. Yeah. Their paths are sort of similar in that they climb a mountain, but they are not climbing the same mountain mountain. It's like, okay, this one climbs Everest, this one's Kilimanjaro, this one's Pikes Peak, this one's Mount McKinley, right? They're all different mountains. But if you've ever climbed a mountain, you know that there are similarities in paths and styles and equipment you need and, and things that happen in climbing a mountain, right? That is this, But each mountain is different and unique and the summit is different and unique. And, that, and to me, that's really what the, the most important point out of this here. But we'll break it down, right? So those are the three questions. Who is God? Who is Jesus? And who's the afterlife? So looking at Hinduism, many gods. Jesus was just a wise teacher and they believe in reincarnation. Okay. Islam, one God, Allah. And he is different. He seems similar and gets portrayed as being, oh, it's dissimilar, right? Sons of Abraham, whatnot. Uh, he is different from the Christian God, though. Jesus was a prophet, was just a prophet, not the son of God. Paradise and punishment um, is based on how you lived your life, on the deeds that you did. Now, you might say, well, God talks about you will be judged for every single thing and whatnot. But he also says, we'll get to that. Anyways, Christianity, there is one God. He is triune in nature. Jesus is his son and the only way to heaven. Afterlife is heaven or hell based on entirely where we put our faith in. Well, on whether we put our faith in Jesus or not. Our works, it does say yes, you will be looked at and God will see how good of a job you did. But the crux of it all is, did you put your faith in Jesus or not? And so... At a glance, you'll see similar teachings or hear similar things. We'll get to that in a second. But then when you really look into them, they're all totally different. Like I said, climbing a mountain, but totally different mountains. It's like climbing Kilimanjaro versus Everest versus Pikes Peak. Like, different. Right? So the fallacy is that, or I think it gets portrayed this way, that Christianity gets pinned as... Is, is being the intolerant one because it claims that, and, and but all these other religions are, are peaceful and they're, they're more open-minded. It's like, no, 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 no. They're all in that bucket. So uh, the one, and then of course we talk about, oh, well, they all teach similar things. Yeah, there's also one key crux to what you're going to see here. You're going to hear the same thing said seven different ways and then you're going to hear it said basically, that's, don't fact check, but that's not an accurate count, but you're going to hear it heard there's one different way that is significantly different. There's one key crux there, right? So in Christianity, 
or sorry, in Confucianism, don't do to others what you would not want them to do to you. So it's saying, if you don't want to get punched, don't punch someone. Hinduism, the sum of duty. Do not do to others what would cause you pain. Same thing. You don't want to get punched, don't punch someone. Buddhism, hurt not others in a way that would define hurtful. Punch, don't punch, right? Christianity, do unto others as you would have them do to you. Meaning, if I want you to hold the door for me, then I need to hold the door, be willing to hold the door for you and everyone else. I need to treat you as such. Meaning, if I wanted to be treated with great respect, or I want to be, we'll go crazy, right? (laughs) If I want, expect a back massage from you, then I should expect to have to give a back massage. So, do you catch that difference? That key difference there? That, yes, they are all similar, and especially in their phrasing. And some of them are almost identical. But the rule you find, that the way you find it in Christianity is in a positive, affirmative sense than in a restraining your negativity sense. So I'll put it in one, one way that I like to think about it, kind of put it in common topical terms is, is, and you might think this is aggressive, but it is a rambling Viking. So is that it's like teaching, it's like imparting on a young man, Hey, don't rape, don't rape, don't rape, don't rape is how you teach him to be good to women versus saying, Women deserve to be treated with the utmost respect. And you should treat them as, use the term, you know, princesses, right? It's royalty. That's how they deserve to be treated. Which, you don't, you're not actively telling him, hey, don't hit them, don't rape them, don't, you know, don't mistreat them. But, but where is the focus? Is the focus on, okay, don't be crappy? Or is the focus on, you need to be spectacular, you need to be the most respectful, loving, kind person. And anybody who knows anything about the power of perspective and what you focus on, and I know I've mentioned it before, like if you look at the pothole in the road and say, don't hit it, don't hit it, you're most likely to hit it. I'm not saying if you sit there and tell yourself, don't rape, don't rape, don't rape, that you're eventually going to end up raping someone and be very confused. Or same with like, don't punch, don't punch, don't punch, but then punch. But I think it's a much more powerful and it's a bigger step to say, hey, be radically kind instead of saying, Hey, just like, don't be crappy to people, right? If you want to be, if you don't want people to be mean to you, don't be mean. Cause okay. That's, that would almost be like the minimum standard, right? In a lot of ways, like, okay, bygones be bygones. But the, what, what, what is Christianity saying? It's like, no, 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 no. It's, it's not just saying, Hey, like, just don't be mean to your neighbor. It's saying, think how you, the ideal way that like you would be seen and treated and treat him that way. Or her that way. Meaning if you want people to pull out all the stops for you. Be extra nice. Give you compliments. You should do all of that to people. And to me. That is a giant leap of a difference. A. It's where's your focus. Where is the focus? Is it on not doing a bad thing? Or is it on doing a really good thing? And I think it's very important you focus on doing a good thing. Like. On the topic of rape. You know. And. I don't know why I think that's topical, but I just hear this like, you know, teach our men not to rape. It's like, well, actually, I think the better thing to do is teach our men that women are precious and we should to treat them as such and guard them. Protect. Not saying that women are weak and need protecting, but that is how we should approach them. Yes. Like a fragile egg you hold in your hands, right? You don't want to misstep. You don't want to drop it. You don't want to squeeze too tightly. You need to walk carefully. You have to treat it with care. <laughs> 
the same. Like that's how we should do. And 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 if you impart that, you're not only gonna get men who aren't, you know, men who know that like, hey, raping is bad. That's bad because I was told I'm supposed to treat you this way, and this is the opposite. But then you're also going to get men who treat women well. You're gonna see. You're not just you're not just going to see a culture where it's like okay good like women don't get raped but they're just you know another person it's like no 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 you you see women exalted in a good way and and treated as such and uh, yeah so and I'm not sitting here saying that that's what I do perfectly by any means because I don't but anyways I'm off my soapbox so that is there you go that's all it's all saying the same thing no. Yes, uh, how many were there? One, two, three. There were four. Three of the four said the same thing. But one of them said something, said a similar thing, but way better. And I would say, actually, takes it way farther in the other direction, the right direction, right? Um, and then another thing that he points out, too, that I think was very good is he talks about the key differences between Jesus and other religious leaders or prophets. He says, other leaders typically or prophets will say, I'm a prophet to help you find God. Jesus said, I am God come to find you. Came to earth, offered myself as a sacrifice so that, so that you can be in my kingdom, right? So that I can to seek and save the lost. Another similar, it sounds similar, right? But it's these small differences. So, and then he kind of touches on a question that is very hard and a totally different discussion. That's kind of what he says. He says, what about those who never hear about Jesus, predate him? Um, you know, the hard question. And Dan does a really good job. And he says, look, I know that God loves his people. He's a loving judge. God wants his people to know Jesus. So he created the mission. So he says, I don't really have a good answer. And these are hard questions a lot of times. Or like, you know, what about a small baby that dies before it even has the ability to comprehend that, right? I don't know. But I can hope and trust that God understands those situations and would say, you know, and if there is that caveat, if you want to put it, that, yeah, he gladly accepts him into their kingdom. Because in so many ways, I mean, a baby that's a week old has had no chance to really do anything wrong, even though we believe we're in sin. But at the same time, they haven't even had a chance to begin to understand or get to know God. So it's like, and that's where, and I think that sometimes that's where a lot of people have problems. It's like, well, all those civilizations had never heard him or whatnot. Well, a lot of times in the ancient civilizations, especially ones that interact with Israel, God gave them chances. And you see that. See, some people turning. Rahab was one person in Jericho. Nineveh was an entire city. And they turned. Then you see other ones ignore for hundreds of years and they get countless opportunities so and that's something that we'll kind of get to but anyways that's a hard question that this book briefly mentions but and basically says he says and i agree with this is that like look i put my faith and trust in god that i know the type that i know his personality or i you know i know how he is and how he operates at least to an extent and understands that he loves his creation and loves his people and wants to be with him and so you know, you can make that happen. So, um, one thing, and you've heard, may have heard me say this on the podcast, but I've definitely been saying this the last few years. Is that like really when you start to dig into it, the Bible is more more wild and graphic than Game of Thrones. I mean, at least just as it, you got all sorts of crazies. Now, I think a big part of that is because the ancient world was wild and crazy, like Game of Thrones, and was ruthless and bloody and violent. And so, 
that's why you see a lot of times like people are like, man, the Old Testament is so brutal. It's like, you got to understand the time that it was written in and talking about. It is much, once again, you can't interject our current super peaceful society into that ancient super barbaric society. Yeah. So, in, in kind of closing, he addresses, it's kind of some rapid fire points though, but just talking about, and the biggest one being, and this is interesting, you learn the history on it too, is that, you know, there are two different gods. And when it's like, once again, when you actually look and dive deep into things, you realize, no, 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 there's, it's all the same God. It's just the difference really being when Jesus comes versus before he comes and a lot of other factors. You also remember 1500 years, folks, when it takes place. So that's one thing though, that he does point out. And I think it's important to point out a lot of times though. And I think that can be a pitfall for Christianity is that we, we kind of bubble wrap it a little too much, but, and don't understand that, like, oh man, I mean, it actually is very violent and really is mature, right? So, he breaks down the approaches, though, from the Christian standpoint to respond to the critique that Old Testament God is different from New Testament. He's violent and bloodthirsty, ruthless as can be. So there's, the first approach, which I personally don't agree with, is no apology. God did it, he can do what he wants. He's God. Uh, I think this is like most of the critiques and kind of the point for writing this book is that, um, you know, it, response to all these, oh, it's anti-women, anti-science, pro-violence, whatever, is it's shallow and not satisfactory. It doesn't dive deeper at all and actually look at it and try and flesh out like, well, actually, when you see and, and really talk through a lot of the things. The other one is the Bible is mistaken. Also, not a good response. That, oh, the stories are like movies based on a real, it's like Hollywood, right? It's based on true events. But then, you know, we, of course, Hollywood it up, exaggerate it to make it compelling. And it's like, well, then we're kind then we're dipping into the realm of like, oh, yeah, it's not true, actually. And uh, I will say there is maybe a drop of that in one of his one part of his explanation we'll get to in a minute. But all in all, neither one of those really that great. Uh, But there's Marcion in 140 A.D., is who is the person who introduced this two different gods approach when he looked at the Bible. Um, and so that's where we kind of get this. Apparently I had no idea. I was like, Oh, that's cool. I didn't know when that far back. Right. Really what we see is, is he points out is that you see, you see a change in how God relates to people after Jesus, but the talk of judgment and death actually doesn't disappear. When you look at it, Jesus spoke about judgment and death more than anyone else. He brought up hell and judgment more than anyone else. And then um, another thing, to, important thing to look at is, I like this too. He talks about God's pinned tweet. If he had a pinned tweet, it would be uh, it would be this. Oh, I thought I had it pulled up. But it's Exodus 34, 6 through 7, and it basically says that he's slow to anger, abounding in love, and he's always forgiving. That's not it. Well, we might not get it, and that's fine. God's pinned tweet. Here we go. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And when you actually start looking and, and in detail, you see that that is the case. 
So, and one quick example with the Israelite people, Moses gets the original 10 commandments comes down and he finds the people turn, you know, made a golden calf and are basically like, ah, oh, we don't know what's going on. We don't know where Moses is. So we're going to go back to, you know, what they did in Egypt. And then Moses is like, son of a gun, smashes him out of rage. But then what does God show? God shows patience with the people, redoes the tablets, comes, has Moses come down a second time. And you see that endlessly throughout Exodus. And especially if you look through Judges, they a lot of times people characterize it as a sin and like a rebellion and a sin and a judgment cycle when in actuality what do you see god doing constantly yeah he is you know bringing judgment through judges on him but he's constantly always trying bring redemption bring the opportunity for redemption back to him over and over and over again and when you look through the bible that is the constant theme god is always using very broken people who screw up wildly and giving them redemption, seemingly endlessly. Now, there are points where he does have to befall judgment. There are points. And it's hard pill to swallow a lot of times. But, and, but he does take a long time to do it. And the other thing, too, to understand is that it's more like in the perspective that God does this, it's like a parent having to punish their child who they love very much and not, you know, not joyfully. Their child screwed up and they're sad about that, but then they understand that like, and they don't really want to, but it's like, I have to deal out some punishment. That is the perspective. Not, I think too many times we read into it as like, it's this great vengeance. And the language can be, and the rhetoric can be extreme. But a lot of times, and this is a point that he makes, it is war-like rhetoric, meaning leave no doubt. And that, I thought that was interesting. So it's it almost sounds like it's ascribed, you know, prescribing to the the Bible is mistaken when it's like no, 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 it's not mistaken. It's written in a specific way. But we'll go to that in a second. My favorite thing, and I haven't wa- I haven't watched this video personally, but it, I'll watch it and put it in the description. So it should be in the description for you. Is that uh, and and I think this is a great illustration for what happens with when people talk about Old Testament versus New Testament God, Old Testament God is brutal, is this is what they do. So Mary Poppins, we all know the film. Someone took all these like very specific parts where she like sends a kid up a chimney or or wisps all the nannies away and it's like all and, and gets these very specific clips and puts them all together. And then what you have is a trailer for a horror flick, like a horror nanny. You know, Mary Poppins is the, deadly nanny is the scary nanny but it's like if you actually watch the whole movie and you know what the story is you're like no no no, it's not it at all same thing here and same thing i've been saying this whole time it's shallow and misconstrued most of these are and but we see but we do see some violent verses and he does provide some examples so towards the end some of the some of the violent verses that he's you know come across that people like to use is happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks that's in psalms so it's poetry so it's actually it's poetic language actually and when the lord your god delivered them over to you and you have defeated them you then you must destroy them totally make no treaty with them and show them no mercy and that's in Deuteronomy and Joshua they devoured they devoted the city to the lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it men women young and old 
He says, I will make my arrows drunk with blood while my sword devours flesh, the blood of the slain and the captives, the heads of the enemy leaders. It's in Deuteronomy. You eat the flesh of your sons and the flesh of your daughters in Leviticus. Brutal, right? Really, really brutal. Yeah. Most of, so fun fact, most of the verses that you find brutal are in a very specific section of the Bible that cover a very finite period of time, right? I think a lot of times we see this, people bring it up and we think it's extrapolated throughout the entirety of the 1500 years the Bible covers. When in actuality, it's a much smaller timeline, several hundred years. And most of the verses regarding God sending Israel into battle are a limited time period. They're not throughout the entire time. If it can feel like it though, and most of them, revolve around securing the promised land. So God had set aside a piece of land, and there were peoples there, and God gave them chances to turn away and to turn to him and to leave. They did not take it, but he had this plot of land. It's like if my dad has a plot of land that I'm going to inherit, but then all of a sudden we go there and there's all sorts of people camping out on it. Well, this is my son's land, and it is for him, and this is... There's a very specific purpose. You need to leave and nobody wants to leave. And so we have to kick them out and evict them. That's basically what happens here, right? It doesn't mean it's an easy pill to swallow, but Israel needed to be there and they needed to be unimpeded. Um, he always gave them, I already said this, uh, opposing the opposing sides. He always gave them the opportunity to turn to him for battling. Uh, one big fallacy is that then this gets, then you start seeing the word genocide be brought into this and he addresses this and he's like, that's just not true because genocide usually is race-based. This isn't, and this wasn't race-based. So, and I mean, you could, I'm sure there's arguments to me, well, it's like the Canaanites and you're the Israelites and it's like, yeah, it's people group, but that's like Americans versus the British. It's all, to use Whoopi with Goldberg's it's a bunch of white people fighting white people, right? So, it's a whole, but that's, that's one thing. It's like I think genocide gets brought into it wrong. I think that word gets thrown wrong, thrown around wrongly a lot of times. But and then another crazy thing is that God doesn't spare His judgment from His own people when they rebel. When Israel rebelled, what we see throughout the Old Testament is they rebel a lot. He allows them to become captives when they rebel. So He does punish them, right? And so He's consistent in that whoever rebelled and didn't turn to Him faced judgment, and that still remains true today. The other thing to keep in mind that he does point out and goes into in detail is that the peoples living in this land, once again, this goes back to the whole barbaric, it, it, like it was, the world was very different, very violent, very barbaric. The peoples in these lands, in this land specifically, were extremely wicked and their practices were beyond grotesque. Like you think God saying, go in and kill everybody is bad? Let's talk about the child sacrifices to Molech that the Canaanites did that was a burning that was a, like a, they would, it had a fire and he had arms and he's made of bronze. So he was a smoldering bronze statue and they would place, they would take babies and place them in his hands as a sacrifice to burn to death. You might say, wow, that's really extreme. Why are you, that's it's really great. But it's important to understand this because then when you understand that context, you understand that it wasn't just like, it wasn't just, oh, it wasn't, you know, peaceful protesters over here. But it was people living not just like, oh, we don't believe you're the God, but extremely violent and grotesque practices. So getting rid of them, getting rid of that. And so that, that brings up another point that it a lot of times wasn't about the fact that Israel was so good. And it's like, hey, make way for the good kids. 
but it was more so that people like the Canaanites that did those sort of practices were so wicked that God had to bring judgment. And after he gave them chances and was patient, had to bring judgment upon them to end the wickedness. And another crazy thing, too, is that God understands us human nature better than anyone. And so you might say, well, why couldn't they just co- coexist peacefully? Well, I think anyone who's wise at all understands that you are affected by the people, like your company, the company you keep dictates what kind of company you are and you're influenced by your friends. I'm somebody who's personally lived that. And I think I've seen how important it is to find good, like solid friends and surround you. And you see that in business too. It's like, if you want to be successful, surround yourself with successful people, people smarter than you don't, don't be the smartest one in the room. Right. And it's the same thing here. He knew that if they were in proximity, they would intermarry. They would they would be they would be tempted and swooned by the Canaanites or whoever and be watered down. It's like I need to keep you pure. So, uh, but God, like you said, this He gave them hundreds of years to repent before judgment, and then I already touched on the ones that did receive mercy: Rahab and Jericho, and then Nineveh, the whole place, and Jonah. So. The ancient world was ex- exponentially more violent and bloody than we can even really comprehend today. And we can't even, we're honestly so far past that in a good way that I look back and it's like, it makes you shiver and quiver. Like when you think about and read about like child sacrifices to Molech and things that would be done like that. But that is how it went. The other thing is that these battles were strategic strikes with violent rhetoric to implore the idea of total elimination. Leave no doubt, like I said, touched on that earlier, right? And when you go back to the Hebrew, here we go, more translation stuff, they com- and it translates as completely destroy, doesn't mean necessarily the same thing that we think of it today. The goal there was to implore the idea that you need to get them out of here completely. Their, everything about their identity needs to be gone. And you need to drive them all out. Right? Spare no one. Meaning, don't leave anyone behind. Don't let anyone stay behind. Don't let any idols stay behind. Get rid of it all. One example that I know, and not from personal experience, but I've just heard this from um, people who have had personal experience, is that when it comes to you know people curbing drug addictions a lot of times. Say you grew up in an area and in a town and you got into drug problem and you're trying to recover. One of the key things for recovering addicts is to get out of the place that you have been to eliminate all chance of to, to get away from those people, completely dissociate, move to a completely new place and almost start a whole new life because there is so, because the pull is always right there. So this is similar, but kind of the opposite, right? We want to go in here and we want to create a new, it's almost like in Beverly Hills, how it's always all new houses because what they do, someone buys a house and it's like, oh, this is a nice house. I'm going to remodel a little bit. They're so rich that they just bulldoze a thing and then build their own house. That's the equivalent, right? It's like, this is, I want to make my house. This is not my house. It's like if everyone left all their furniture and all their stuff and pictures, just you'd get rid of it all. It's mine. I want people to know that, right? So. And then, of course, there's a question about, you know, killing of infants and things like that. Uh, it doesn't provide a good, clear answer. Once again, this is just one of those hard things that we... There are still mysteries and things that we will never understand or never come to a fully, like, good conclusion. And even a lot of stuff talked about in here isn't always a good explanation or conclusion. When I say good, meaning completely satisfactory, but we still have to take it. When we know enough about the good 
and about this God and dispelling a lot of those other rumors, then you have a foundation where it's like, I trust his goodness to, to do the, to do the best thing through this, you know, in regards to this tragedy around this or have, or his reasons at this point, you know? So one phrase that he uses in this book that I like, um, and this is where I'll sum it up. Yeah, we're closing it out. Only took us two hours. Well, not surprised. Wish I was, but it's that Jesus loved that crazy Bible and he knew it in and out. He believed it to be true. Old Testament and all. One thing he does come back to, he says they didn't have the New Testament. He was only looking at the Old Testament. So it's interesting, right? All of the Bible points to Jesus and redemption. We must look at all parts, even the difficult ones. Especially, I would say especially the difficult ones. Because we need to know why. Why is this thing this way? And then when you can understand it better, then it's like, okay. And it actually strengthens you in a lot of ways. Uh, biggest thing is that context is key in digging deeper. Um, when we do that, we find the truth of a loving God abounding in grace, slow to anger and judgment all throughout the Bible. And yeah, that's what this book does. And hopefully that's at least what I did on a surface level, gave you a preview and call it a preview. You could probably, who knows, depending on how fast of a reader, you could read almost half this book in the time it took you to listen to this podcast. But if this hasn't convinced you at this point, then uh, just stop being a honyak about it, you know, but that is how not to read the Bible by Dan Campbell. It's funny, you know, I was, I, you talk about, I, I was talking about how it's in the affirmative, the golden rule is in Christianity, but it's in the negative in the other sense. And then this book is literally how not to read the Bible. But really what it is, is, you know, the not is in parentheses. So it's how to read the Bible and it. And that's what it gives you is tools on how to properly read the Bible. The biggest, most important thing is don't, don't get caught up in these little tropes and things like that, where someone shows you one single verse. I think an important thing to do First of all, on the internet, just try and avoid the dumb arguments. People are stupid. But if you are having a discussion with someone and they bring up these hard questions in some of these verses and you don't have an answer, maybe just having some more questions about it. Well, or you do have an answer, but you still just decide to ask those questions. You know, if they bring up some of these verses in Deuteronomy, what about this? What about that? And so you can say, well, tell me what you know about the time that, that was written and and what you know about the Israelite people at that time, where they were in their history. Like, tell me what you know about the context of that verse. Because I would suppose that most of these people bringing these objections would not be able to tell you any of the context at all. Outside of, it's in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, a bunch of laws. Yeah? Why was God doing that? He was establishing his literal, in an ancient world, and this is from the Baymont podcast, but like marriage with the Israelite people. And in establishing that in a lot of ways, he was establishing vows and how it works and he was retraining them, debriefing them, you know, bringing them out of the culture they had been and establishing his culture. So I think that I think that's almost because a lot of times questions can prompt better discussion and conversation or thought thought than me saying, well, you know, it's actually this or that, or you know, that, you know, but just saying, just so I'm gonna say, well, what was the context there? And if they don't know, maybe tell them the context there say, well, here's some of the context. They had just come out of slavery. They're in the desert. God is establishing his um, way of life with them, teaching them about himself. And also in that time at large, here's how the world worked. Here's what, how, here's what things were commonplace. And I would bet, so you're going to get one of two responses. Someone who's 
already set in their ways and doesn't isn't going to change their mind anyways will just gawk at it and probably deflect or shift or twist things around because that's what people do and so well yeah there's still i still have tons of problems with you know say something vague like that or they'll say oh i didn't know that and boom now you have a conversation of mine you say hey if you want to know more about that why don't you go read dan kimball's how not to read the bible boom shakalaka not a sponsor at all but he's not and probably never will be but very very good book like i said all in all 12 out of 12 incredible book whether you're a longtime Christian like myself, new Christian, or you're an atheist even, you find yourself in the other camp, I recommend the read. Because if nothing else, even if all the answers aren't satisfactory to you and you don't buy it, you at least are getting hard, seemingly hard questions or hard parts of the Bible addressed directly, taken head on. And that is something that I can appreciate. Because if you know me, you know, you know, the best thing is just to take these, not dance around issues, not avoid them, but Take them head on. And that's what this book does. Extremely easy read. It's like 15 bucks on Amazon. I'll have the link in the description below. But yeah, first book review. Next one's going to be Carnivore Code. It's a lot longer, a lot more heady. I'm not going to understand a lot of it. So I might just be talking about the general philosophy. We'll see. Who knows? I would love any and all feedback. Did I give away too much? I hope not. Sorry, Dan Kimball, if I did. If I spoiled too much. I don't think I did. I think I gave you some overarching points and a glimpse into what he talks about. But didn't really go into the depths of, I went into the depths of some of them, but, uh, I mean, I left a lot up to read about and he has a ton of references that I didn't even touch on. And I mentioned verses, but didn't mention them specifically. You might have a problem with that. We'll go read the book. And he mentions them all specifically. It's like I did it on purpose. You know, somewhat planned might've still been mostly poorly planned, but Hey, here we go. So, all right, I got to close it out here. Cause that is, that is a lot. So thank you so, so much for listening to this entire monster episode where I'm walking through this book. I hope it was interesting though, because I find this book very thought provoking. And I do think that the topics he talked about are important topics that a lot of times are common critiques of Christianity. So whether you're looking for a way to defend Christianity better, or you're um, just curious about some of the hard parts and you are someone who has these critiques, but that does it for this episode of the Ramley Viking Podcast. Um, no more announcements. Links are in the description. Thank you so much for being a part of the Hanya Accord or welcome to the Hanya Accord. We hope to see you here next time. I think we'll have a really fun episode for you on Monday. Really excited about it. This is your head Hanyak signing off.